Hello folks, I have returned. I am so, so sorry that I did not have a podcast episode last week. Uh, I did mention it on the Twitter account, but of course, you know, it's very hard to kind of post something or kind of release some kind of statement in a podcast format unless I kind of record a special piece. But that's just it. I was in no condition to be able to record any kind of audio or video podcast. piece of content at all I mean I barely struggled to do some backup review reviews and videos and stuff for the niche channel last week uh, due to uh, one or two days out of the week last week where my parents were gone so I wanted to kind of take advantage of that time to be of me by myself at home to be able to create content but I knew that after that was done the worst was uh, was gonna come out of a very bad cold that I had last week so it was a combination of two things that resulted in me not delivering an episode last week this is now episode eight of season three which was supposed to be last week but i inadvertently took a week off because of two reasons one more superior over the other the superior one is very obviously i had a cold i i had a cold it was probably from my dad because he was sick so it probably jumped onto me somehow some way either he put his toothbrush real quick to mine or of course the sheer fact that him and i pretty much share a bathroom so eventually some something was gonna jump somewhere in there, whether it be with the towels or the, the handles of things and and such. Even though I try my fucking best to uh, take care of my hygienics as much as possible, um, it looked like it was just not good enough, and it jumped over. And it was pretty much it. Pretty the whole cold pretty much lasted a good even like four or five days. Uh, and then it was the traditional kind of process of going through that cold that I always do, which kind of sucks and kind of doesn't. It's it has its it's literally inverse of each other from one half to the next. The first half I pretty much go through two two phases. The first half I sound fine and I look fine, but I feel like utter shit, which was pretty much the back half of that Friday of uh like the Friday right before I was supposed to record a podcast and then Saturday this not this Saturday it just passed but the last Saturday Saturday was the worst of it where I woke up with a headache uh I barely had an appetite so I barely ate throughout the day um I was hot I don't I, it's possible that I might have had a fever but at the same time I didn't feel like delirious um much or maybe I was just trying my best to ignore it because that same Saturday I made a commitment to pick up my girlfriend from the Los uh, LAX airport. Uh, she was cut flying in from a trip to Texas for a wedding. And I inadvertently told her that I was going to pick her up that Saturday. But as I started to feel this cold coming on, I was thinking, I, am I going to be good enough for that? And Saturday, I just woke up like shit. But I knew deep down, I was like, I I don't feel like I don't feel dizzy or weary or just out of it when I when I get up when I you know walk around or whatever. So I should be good enough to to drive. And for the most part, I mean that was kind of the case. Like I I felt like shit, but it it was and it was a pretty lengthy drive on a Saturday afternoon because she was arriving like around five thirty ish. So obviously I needed to take off from where I live. Uh, well, I ended up taking off like around 2.30 or so, three hours in advance. It took two of those hours, a little over of those two hours, like two hours and 15, two hours and 20 to actually get there because of the traffic. The other the other extra 45 minutes, I picked up a couple of uh, uh, something on the way on a Best Buy on the way and uh, near near replicant for $15 because it was on sale. And then I also stopped by Target to check out if they had any kind of like McFarland's at a special Target that I've never been to, one in Pasadena. 
And uh, it was a pretty cool looking target, I will admit, from what I was able to see, despite feeling, like I said, like shit. Uh, and while I was there, I was parched. I needed uh, a cold drink as opposed to a warm one because the one in my car was already warm. So I got myself an extra cold drink. And, and I think this is the m little moment where I was like, maybe I am sick. Uh, I do have a fever because uh, before I knew it, instead of drinking the water, I just had the whole cold bottle on my forehead. And I had it like that for the remaining remainder of the trip as I just kind of laid uh, back on my chair and tried my best to uh, not hit, any hit anybody on the freeway. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that was probably a uh, poor course of action, but like I said, my girlfriend didn't have any other ride from the airport. Picked her up, started to feel a little bit better as I kind of distracted myself by talking to her, going to dinner, even though, like I said, my appetite was kind of scattershot. After about seven hours from when I ate my breakfast, I actually started to finally get hungry. Uh, her and I shared a couple of pupusas. For those of you who don't know, that's a Salvadorian dish. It's pretty much like a like dough, uh, cooked up with some kind of filling inside. And the filling ranges between uh, sausage, pork, chicken, beef, uh, beans, cheese, and then, of course, a combination of uh, these kind of factors. Like, I went with the lighter uh, only because, like I said, my appetite was just kind of every, uh, all over the place. So I, th I thought to myself, okay, don't get anything terribly heavy. Get a bean and cheese uh, pupusa and just uh, eat it lightly with some empanadas. And it, it, it actually hit the mark, and I got myself a... A Coke Zero, and despite already being dehydrated from from being sick, the Coke Zero still slapped, especially since I, ne I needed to drive an additional two hours home. And god damn, I was exhausted that night. I was exhausted that I... I think I slept an extra two hours, which is kind of rare for me. You know, I, I usually do well between six and a half to seven and a half hours. I slept like nine, almost ten. Uh, granted, the first two hours was kind of like a nap. I fell asleep in my, like, my regular clothes, and then finally I woke up, took a shower, edited a video for a little while, and then went back to bed, and I was able to knock out instantly. Thankfully, Sunday I woke up, and I can already tell I was feeling a little better. I didn't have a headache anymore. I didn't feel feverish or hot, but... Then we started to then transition into the second half, the second phase of whenever I get a cold, which sadly as a content creator is to me the most detrimental stage, which is the sounding and looking like shit, but actually feeling good phase where my throat is uh, scratchy and there's a lot of phlegm bouncing all over the place in my sinuses and in my throat. My nose is stuffed up and leaking, but... I feel fine for the rest of my body, like no headache, I'm actually energized, my appetite's back, so I'm getting hungry uh, on the typical times of the day, but of course, all of these things, uh, all of these problems with the throw and the nose makes it completely counterproductive to doing any kind of content, and it was around this time that it was time for me to record the podcast, and it was a combination of that with pretty much not a whole lot of news to really talk about that ultimately made me make the decision to forego an episode last week. So that's pretty much the thorough uh, explanation as to why there was no episode 8 last week. Uh, so it was those two main reasons. One, the main, main reason was that I was sick. The second reason that kind of coupled with the first reason that ultimately made me kind of finalize on that decision was realizing that aside from the Kingdom Hearts 4 reveal... There was really not much else that I could have possibly talked about. Like, like I looked all over the place. I looked through IGN, GameSpot, and I'm like, there's a couple of things here and there, but there was nothing to me that stood out as something that I sincerely wanted to talk about on the podcast. And because of that, I was like, I, I, just, I, I really don't really... 
I, I, I would rather prefer to rest on my voice, especially since that Monday or Tuesday before my voice got really, really bad, I used the last form of kind of sincere um, sounding tones out of my voice to record a couple of videos, two of which I ended up re-recording later anyway due to uh, uh, another little circumstance that I'm about to talk about right now. But basically, I, I was in a rush to try to get content made because uh, once this happened between Monday, it's funny, I come back uh, Sunday from spending the weekend with my girlfriend after picking her up from the airport. I come home and then my parents are like, oh yeah, we're going to be gone for like three days. And I was like, yes, because... A, I can rest my voice without having to, like, answer to anybody. Uh, I can have some peace and quiet around the house. But also, I was I really wanted to take advantage of them being gone to record content. Unfortunately, it was here where my voice was starting to go out. I did get a couple of videos done, but now looking back, I just realized I ended up re-recording those videos anyway. <laughs> like, uh, over this past uh, weekend, while well, they were gone again for, like, n not for days, but the, when they took their, like, uh, dinner trips out and they were out of the house. I was like, finally, I, I my voice is back to normal. Let me re-record these videos. So it ended up being for nothing. And I, looking back, I probably should have just rested the voice altogether. So yeah, it's it's been it's some it's been a while. It's been some week, uh, some couple of weeks since I last spoke to you guys, and that just makes the tip of the iceberg because then we have the massive iceberg that is pretty much sinking the. The, the Titanic-sized ship dream that was me and my girlfriend hopefully moving out in the next uh, month or so. I'll, along with a couple of other things that I'm going to have to look at and go, yeah, that's that's going to be a no-go. All these other things just completely put on pause because, unfortunately, it's here on the podcast. And I think eventually it will, uh, unless it, it absolutely, positively, 100% fucking percent requires it. I think it's just going to be on a need-to-know basis as far as mentioning it on any kind of YouTube piece of content, whether it be for the Miscellaneous channel or the Niche channel. But here on the podcast, considering that I consider the podcast to be a journal of some sorts, I guess there's no other uh, place except maybe my, my blog or my website to really talk about this here. But uh, unfortunately, I am being let go from my job. A job that I thoroughly did like. Um, for the past three months as a creator resident at the agency that I was working for um, in which I was pretty much a content creator uh, that I just needed to create content that was appropriate for the respective accounts. But other than that, I was utilizing the tools and the talents that I'm good at as far as video editing, motion graphics design, you know, working with Vegas Pro, working with Adobe, Photoshop and Premiere, etc. And all these, uh, you know, creative, you know, juice, juicy stuff. Um, sadly, I'm being let go by because, as I have mentioned on the pod podcast before, as well as pretty much anywhere else that I've really talked about this position, from the get go, it was meant to be a residency program, aka, it's kind of, it's, it's like, a, it's pretty much a, a very fancy way of saying that it was going to be like a seasonal term, you know, like when you get a seasonal job, it's only for like three months or so and then finally they're like well that's it uh you know thank you for your for your service for your work here's your last check uh put us down as a recommendation or as a reference uh on your next resume but otherwise it was a pleasure doing business with you that's pretty much what happened with me except with the resident the reason why they call it a residency program is because even though it's meant to be like a trial run like a three-month period run the intention and the goal that is always there is to keep 
these residents to then convert them over to full-time as far as actually provide offers to be like, hey, we evaluated you, we talked to the people that you worked with and you worked for and looked over your creative outputs and all that stuff. Uh, you're good. Uh, here's the offer to bump you up to full-time. You now get benefits. You get a slight uh, raise. That offer is pretty much what I was waiting on to determine if me and the girlfriend can now formally um, start looking at places uh, that's closer to LA to potentially move in and um, start a new life and actually move into the next phase of, you know, figuratively and literally of not only our relationship, but just in life period, like finally jumping out of the nest. That way we don't die in this godforsaken wasteland. Um, Sadly, that's put on pause yet again because uh, this past Friday, I finally had a meeting. And uh, let me tell you just a quick narrative of how the roller coaster of emotions that I went through because uh, apparently uh, there were a lot of hints being dropped that uh, for other people getting offers. So they were like, oh my God, I think it's happening, things happening. But for the majority of the time, it was radio silence for me to the point where I needed to reach out to uh some of the people that coordinate hiring and coordinate these offers and such, I had to like reach out to them and be like, Hey, uh, I haven't heard anything what's happening. And, uh, apparently one of the directors got sick. Although I found now thinking back, I found the, uh, the timing of this happening a little convenient, but you know, nobody will ever truly know what's happening. And frankly, I don't really care at this point, but, uh, yeah, there was uh, an awful lot of pause, an awful lot of delay, an awful lot of, uh, lingering, uh, especially, like I said, on my end, because it was just very radio silence that I had to reach out. Finally, one of those directors reached out to me uh, on Friday, asking me if I could connect with not just him, but also another director. So two directors. And I thought, okay, uh, two of them. Yeah, And I knew both of them, but I was like, I was still kind of curious that both of them wanted to talk to me. And then they sent over the Google Calendar invite. And when I get that invite, I notice... And this is where my stomach finally sank. And I was like, oh, well, this is it. Is when the calendar invite showed that the connect, the meeting that they wanted to have, was only scheduled to be five minutes long. Five minutes. And yet I'm meeting with two directors, not one. You know, I've been in the business or I've been, you know, I've handled enough jobs to know that when not one, but two managers want to meet with you, but it's meant to be like a quick thing, like don't get too comfortable in your chair type thing, you're being let go. Because it, 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 it technically it only needs one manager, but the second manager there is the witness. For those of you um, who either haven't had a job yet or you know, you're know you a little bit on the younger side and you haven't had a job yet or uh, you haven't been in the game for that long, if a manager pulls you to the side, they say it's going to be a quick thing, but they also happen to have another manager in the room if it's like a physical thing or if it's a digital thing to have somebody else on the call, that's a witness. And a witness is required when you're when you're when someone's being fired. Not to witness the whole thing go down, to make sure it's by the book and to make sure that the uh employee getting let go doesn't go crazy, doesn't go postal. <laughs> um yeah. And so when I noticed this, I immediately was like, well, start uh typing up that new resume and that pretty much is how the meeting went down they said that my ideas were not up to par uh this this and that and that sometime this week probably by the time you guys listen to this uh i will get a uh 
much more formal uh, confirmation emails, as well as like a bunch of other things just to cover logistics as far as um, how to, you know, not have, you know, how to like uh, forfeit my, e- my work email, passwords, you know, reset things and, you know, kind of deliver my exit, if you will. And uh, this is my last week. Uh, I'm technically still working this week, but it's uh, it's my last week. The residency officially ends on the 22nd. Um, and so far in the past couple of days, I've learned that almost every other creator resident that was hired along with me did get an offer except me. So I'm not going to lie. I mean, this is the big elephant in the room. I'm not going to lie. I, I, will, I would be lying. I would be remiss and lying if you were to ask me if that didn't smell a little fishy. And I would say, yeah, it kind of does. Because uh, I have it on good authority that some of these residents that did get offers... Um, let's just say that their creative work is still creative and it's still good, but even they say, how dude, your stuff was like amazing as far as like the work you put into like some of the TikTok stuff that I was putting together, some of the, you know, graphics and, you know, using green screen effects and costumes and props and, and things like that that required a, 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 a good, a, at least a good dozen hours to edit the whole batch. Um, and it was all for nothing. Like some of these, some of these uh, pieces of creative content didn't even see the light of day. Uh, didn't even get pushed through. Whereas other stuff, and like I said, it's gonna sound like I'm jealous, but at the same time, I'm happy for some of these other folks because they are genuinely talented. So I'm like, hey, you know, best of wishes, best of luck. We'll keep contact. You know, we're exchanging numbers, emails, and and such, uh, in case they hear of any other agency or any other place. You know, hiring, but. Um, like I said, I had some pieces of creative content where I did a lot of editing, green screen effects, titles, sound effects, uh, music, pro- and then shot in camera with you know props and costumes and, and things like that. You know, very elaborate stuff. And yet, uh, one of the other other residents who likely got an offer made a uh, one of those super easy TikTok videos where all they did was just do like a re- self record. And they did two shots, montaged them together, and then posted on the account, and they got like 1.2 million views. It for something that they shot in like 10 minutes, on uh, you know it, at a store, on an iPhone, like just simple, just looking at themselves. And I'm like, yeah, don't don't get me wrong, I do my my BS radar is kind of going off a little bit, but I've been down this road before i just recently got through a settlement with the past employer where i smelled the bullshit and i tried to extrapolate on that bullshit but with this it was a residency i was there only for three months i'm kind of like you know what let me just take the references take the work and hopefully uh, see how i can go about building a portfolio out of this and hopefully you know show it at the next job to show what I can do and what can I bring to the table and see if it's a, a much better fit than at the agency because that's what it comes down to it like th- those are my theories is that a they just didn't find it a good fit because from a personality level from an aesthetical level because they don't want something as edgy as the stuff that I provide or maybe just someone didn't personally like me <laughs> I know that sounds paranoid but I mean like I said when you think about the fact that some other residents got offers and I and I exclusively on a solo matter didn't it's kind of like uh okay you know something feels a little weird here um 
So yeah, another chapter here is closing, and because of that, like I said, uh, the really gargantuan plans of me and the girlfriend potentially moving in uh, are definitely put on hold. Uh, that was probably the hardest part uh, of hearing these news is just knowing that I I have to go tell my girlfriend like, hey, we still can't um, move in. Uh, it's still an indefinite thing as far as when that's going to happen. It could be as soon as in a couple of months. It could be as late as next year. And then, you know, after a while, my brain starts to kind of whirlwind out of control in in a way where then I start to look at the worst case scenario and think to myself, wow, I, it's slowly but surely starting to feel like I don't belong anywhere. You know, like, because for the first time in a real long time, I think this is what really does it in for me, what really kind of struck at the core. And, you know, when I heard these news, I just did not feel like doing anything else for the rest of uh, Friday. I didn't text anybody. I didn't talk to anybody. I went to the gym, but I legitimately was not feeling it that I left early. I, I just, I couldn't, you know, I, I tried to be like, you know, maybe I can take my stress out at, at the gym and I couldn't even do that. I, I just, I just kept thinking about this, about the fact that I couldn't, you know, take me and my girlfriend out of this stupid town because I, I live in a town, it, it, it's, it's basically, I specifically live in a town that's adjacent to a town called Victorville, uh, here in the high desert, um, and the reason why I'm finally saying the name of the town, because, of course, my thing has always been like, oh, uh, you know, I don't want to put my town out there because in case, you know, somebody stalks me or whatever. But I'm at the point where, you know what, this the, I, I need to say the name in order to provide some legitimate context as to why I'm so desperate to get the fuck out. Because it's specifically, I don't live in Victorville. I live in a town kind of adjacent to Victorville, like right on the outskirts. So, officially, I don't live in Victorville. Unofficially, it's about five minutes, uh, you know, in almost any direction to reach Victorville and still be in the high desert. And some of you probably upon hearing the, the word Victorville, uh, if, you know, if, if you keep track of certain demographics and statistics, you will probably hear Victorville and go, oof, I'm so sorry, dude. Because very often... <laughs> very often Victorville will be found will be found either in the top five or top 10 worst cities to live in in all of California the whole state of California and that's not an exaggeration if if you like to take a pause right here on the podcast go into Google and just put in there worst cities to live in California and I'm pretty fucking sure that Victorville is going to show up either in the top five or top 10 along with San Bernardino I think maybe Compton might show up in there, but yeah, things are bad. Things are bad in the in this town and are getting worse. I feel like by the day, by the week, uh, we have a news website, Victor uh, Victor Valley News Group or VVNG.com, and literally every headline is about someone getting killed, someone getting robbed, someone getting run over, crashing, and it's nothing but bad news. Like there's literally no good news on that website. Literally, look it up. You will see nothing but just constant like so and so got into a car crash. So and so, a body was found inside of a car on the side of this road. Uh, a uh, heroin operation was it was you know it was uh, uncovered by a sting in this part of the uh, this neighborhood. That's like just a few minutes from where I live. I'm like, what the god damn? And if that wasn't testament enough, um. Literally these days, I'm scared to go out driving because everybody in this fucking town drives like a 
like they they didn't you know exams is it, it they a lot of people always use this expression but it legit they legitimately drive like they didn't take the test and the test is rather irrelevant here the driver's test it's fucking irrelevant because everybody drives like they didn't earn it they didn't actually take it literally every time i go out to the gym like there's days where the only place i go to is the gym i drive to the gym Work out and then come back, and I don't go anywhere else. And literally on the trip to and from the gym, I almost get hit at least at least once. Or you know, it, and when I say hit, it ranges between a small fender bender because someone's just you know breaking too much or being too slow when they should be cranking it up on the on the on the on the speed, or going uh, uh not necessarily going too fast, but like you know the light is about to change and they're taking the sweet ass fucking time and I'm over here actually abiding by the speed limit but I have to break because this guy doesn't want to doesn't want to hurt the little cosmetics on the bottom of his Honda Civic oh my god you fucking idiot and then it's the it ranges from as small as a fender bender on those circumstances to as dangerous as being t-boned by some fucker who was going was trying to race at least once Every day that I go to the gym, at least once, and I know for a fact it's not just me because there's been a couple of instances where me and the girlfriend are hanging out. She offers to drive. We go to a place to get like cookies or go to the grocery store to get some errands and, and things like that. And she's like, what is going on? And I'm like... Why are you still asking yourself that? Because I've been dealing with this literally for the past few months. Like every time I drive, there's one person who is clearly showing that they can't. And that's just the surface level stuff. So yeah, it's it's really bad here. It's really, really bad here. And I would just very desperately like to get me and my girlfriend out of here. And get closer to the business, get closer to LA. This jo- job, this residency that I had... At this agency, the agency's headquarters are located in Culver, Culver City. And the initially, the idea was going to be to move somewhere that's close by Culver City or, goddamn, maybe even in Culver City. And that way, the commute could be severely cut down. I'll be closer to the business. I'll be closer to L.A. Uh, while I'm not working, I could work on a script and maybe shop it around uh, Hollywood or Los Angeles, you know, maybe partner up with an agency or, or an yeah an agency to get my own agent etc etc moves could have been made but now like I said all that stuff is completely taken a backseat because I got the boot and so like I said it's being eased I'm being eased out of it in a very kind of like dismissal sort of way so I'm not like immediately fired like I said I get still got another week and because I got another week I technically still have another paycheck on the way at the end of the month so there is going to be some more relief there as far as uh, financial backing for some bills. So I guess looking looking at it, you know, ahead, I'm technically good for like another month or month and a half or so as far as bills are concerned. But as far as those big uh, moves that I really wanted to act upon, um, that's not going to happen, uh, especially the moving out part. But also for some of... Uh, some of the things that I that I recently bought and looked at and went, yeah, I'm gonna have to return that. There's three main ones. One of them I I can return and I'm likely return, and it's funny because I'm likely gonna return it. It's like a 90% chance that I'm gonna return it because even before the news of me being let go, I initially really did want to return this thing because I'm honestly not feeling it 100%, and that was this uh small, yeah, relatively small. Uh, and portable uh, gimbal for my Sony mirrorless camera. I bought a gimbal. 
I bought it used, but like new, so it, which it really was. Like I pulled it out of the box, and I'm like, yeah, this looks like it was just played with like once. They probably didn't like it, kind of like how I'm feeling right now, and returned it. And I'm probably gonna be doing the same thing here. It cost me about 150. Um, it's the Zeon Crane M2. So it's a relatively small but still pretty effective gimbal for cameras that I think don't go over like three or four pounds which my Sony mirrorless uh, A6400 definitely falls under. And that's the thing, as far as playing around with it, like I, I played around with it for about a, a week or so now. And I told myself, if I'm not vibing with it at the end of that week, then for sure I'm going to return it. And like I said, this was prior to the news of me being let go. So I was already feeling like returning it. Um, now, with the news of being let go, I'm for sure going to return it after I get just a little bit more footage shot with it. Uh, just in case. But the reason why I'm inclined to return it is because even though the gimbal by itself is not bad, it, it really isn't. It's, let's just say that I'm getting the feeling that this is a gimbal that is excellent for people who are doing very quick movements. Like if they're doing self-vlogging or if they're, you know, or if they're vlogging of any kind, whether it be self-vlogging or vlogging of like on location, walking down places and getting these cool gliding shots when they're on on tour or they're you know, uh, you know visiting somewhere for vacation etc for what i wanted to use it for as far as like b-roll for action figures uh steelbook cases products things like that that are right here in my house or in my room on the table that calls on me to not move quickly but rather move slow and I don't know if I'm doing it wrong. I've watched a handful of tutorials, a handful of reviews on this gimbal, and none. Of, I'm doing pretty much everything by the book. And as far as I can tell, every time I do slow shots with this gimbal, it doesn't really, like, the bobbing inside of the video, it's not terrible. It's still smooth, uh, at least for a gimbal, but not to toot my own horn, but it doesn't look remarkably different than me just using my own hands. And that's that. That was going to be my other point. Is that this is also a great gimbal for people who have, uh, by nature, by habit, really shaky hands. Like they just habitually have really terrible hands as far as being really delicate and smooth and careful with their hands as far as like moving uh, cameras or moving things that require a finesse touch to the the whole ordeal. I personally. I do kind of have that, you know, I do kind of have a, a slight, uh, you know, delicate touch to uh, my hands, especially when I'm dealing with an awful lot of action figures and very small stuff like that, very collectible stuff. And because of that, over the years, I've developed a smooth hand when handling uh, certain like pan panning shots or dolling up shots when I'm moving the camera from from the bottom to the top, etc. So I noticed that when I mess with the gimbal, it really doesn't look all that different. And because it's not doing anything like extremely different i guess right now my actions are to either get a much pricier gimbal that's even way smoother and has a way better um gyro mechanical system inside of it if you want to call it that uh which of course is not ideal right now because i lost my job there's really no point in spending any more money that i should uh and then the other option is of course to return it get my money back uh that way i can preserve that money for when i need it here in this next month or so because of the loss of my job and because also I'm not seeing any major difference. 
Uh, like I said, it's it, I can definitely see the smoothness and the effect when moving it very, very quickly. Like I was at my girlfriend's house and I moved from one end of the house to the, ne the next at normal speed. And the gimbal is definitely keeping the, the camera balanced and smooth. It looks like a legitimate uh, dolly shot or panning shot. Like if it was on a uh, crane, uh, you know, for a movie set or whatever. So it looked equivalent to that and it did the job and it was re remarkable in that sense. But when I do something really, really small, like if I have a seven inch figure on the table and I'm trying to like go from its left side to its right side slowly, it, it it's smooth, but not not that much smoother than just using my hands. It, it really isn't. Um, so for quick movements, it does the job for a, and when it comes to slow movements, it will probably do a way better job of smoothing out the image for people who have naturally shaky hands. But for me being that I already have smooth enough hands to do the job myself, I'm not seeing that big of an impact. And because of that, and along with losing my job, I'm going to return it. The second, uh, most expensive thing that I looked at and said, okay, yeah, that's definitely going back. Unfortunately, cannot be returned. I mean, it technically can be returned, but I'll only be getting store credit. And knowing that it's, I'm only going to be getting store credit, I'm like, yeah, I guess I might as well keep this, especially since it's pretty much out of stock right now. They might restock it in the future, but being that it's a Lego store exclusive, I doubt I, that will be coming anytime soon. And that is for, for my impulse buy of the Lego DeLorean set from Back to the Future. So... I jumped on that, and like I said, this was like two or so weeks before I got the news of my of my letting go. So I was up early for work, and I, through Twitter, I find out that the pre-orders, or I'm sorry, the orders, the the page, was gonna go live uh, in a, in like five minutes for the DeLorean Lego set, uh, which is pretty much a very intricate, I think like 1800 piece uh, Lego set of the DeLorean time machine from Back to the Future. One other huge thing about this set that attracted me a lot was that A was coming with two little minifigures for Doc and Marty that actually fit in the car. But to me, more importantly, more and more attractive was the fact that you can actually transform the DeLorean from the version you get in part one to the one from part two and then the one from part three. So you can swap out the wheels, you can put in the Mr. Fusion, and then you could put the the jerry-rigged uh, engine that you have at the front when he has to fix it up to go back to 18, uh, 1885 in part three. And so you can swap out all these different pieces to get all three versions of the DeLorean. So that alone made me go, yeah, I need to get this. And so I jumped at that, uh, not realizing the return policy. Well, I, I skimmed over it, and I saw right there that unopened, you can return within 30 days. I was like, oh, yeah, cool. Unfortunately, I didn't read further in the policy, and it said right there that if returning it, uh, unopened pieces, if it's under $200, you only get store credit or a gift card. And I'm like, so, you know, unless I had a job and I thought to myself, oh, I can get the Death Star or the Batmobile or whatever, but now with no job, I'd rather have my money back. Now knowing this little piece of information and knowing that, the, that this set is completely sold out, I might as well keep it, right? You know, it's like, that's just gonna that's just gonna have to be a loss that I'm just gonna have to take. And the other one is one that I'm not so much returning. Initially it was I when I got got these news this past Friday, I told myself, okay, yes, as soon as it arrives in the mail, I'm gonna contact Valve and ask him if I can get a refund 
for this thing. But now, recently, I thought to myself, well, before you do that, let me ask a buddy of mine, see if he wants to buy it off of me, because I know that he was interested in this thing too. And he did say that he was. But before I do relinquish it over to him, I do want to talk about this uh, hefty purchase that I made that I'm sadly going to have to part with in order to get some of that money back to help me out during this time of being in between jobs. And that is for the Valve Steam Deck. Yes, the Steam Deck has arrived. It is now in my possession, at least momentarily, because, of course, as I disclosed at the beginning of this episode, I sadly, you know, lost the job. I'm currently in between jobs. And frankly, in the position that I'm at, I just... Ah, God, the timing. The timing is just impeccable, isn't it? Like, the week... Basically, let me break down how things went. The Monday that I find out that I lost my, my, my job... I, you know, that Monday, obviously, I didn't know the case, you know, everything was still kind of pending. So, that Monday, uh, I get the email saying, hey, Steam Deck is ready. I'm like, yo, this is legit. It was April 11th, Monday, April 11th. Get the email finally around like 10-ish, a little bit before 10, like 9.45, 9.50. Get the email saying that it's ready. I, and I had like over eight, nine hundred dollars in my bank account. I was like, okay, you know, so obviously I got the money for now. And at the time, like I said, I thought I was pretty optimistic about my job. So, you know, I made the transaction. The next day I get the email saying that it's getting ready for shipping. So if anybody is in the process of trying to figure out how long it takes for uh, Valve to ship out their Steam Decks, from what I've seen online and from my own personal experience, on average, it's about six days because it was that Tuesday that I got the email saying it's ready. To, it's about to get ready for, to ship. Wednesday was when it shipped proper from Carroll Stream, Illinois. And then Tuesday the 19th was when I received it. Uh, so it was this past uh, Tuesday th- this week. And I could have gotten, this is also another reason why I couldn't get this podcast episode uh, on time, you know, beyond not there being an episode last week due to me being sick. Uh, This week's episode was supposed to go up a little earlier. I started recording it rather earlier, but it wasn't until Thursday proper that I was finally able to play around with the Steam Deck. Because even though I received it on Tuesday, I received it kind of late and I already had a lot of other things to take care of, especially as far as the editing jobs that... uh, I had to work on whether it be for the last remaining jobs that I had for work or, you know, for, the, you know, the, the last, you know, wave of things that I could submit before my last day or my uh, actual personal content on the niche channel. And so by the end of Tuesday, I was like, you know what, I'm going to put this off until Wednesday at, at the very least. So Wednesday, I finally got to unboxing it right out of the box. I I don't know if I'm a fan of this, but I don't like that. Yeah, I don't hate it, but I don't like that the shipping, the brown shipping box is also the pretty much the main box, if that makes any kind of sense. Like, as soon as you open this box, the box containing the charger and then the carrying case is just right there. You know what I'm saying? So there's not an additional box inside. So, so some people might like that because they don't want, like, extra box, extra cardboard. Me, I don't know. I just felt like that's a, extra, a, a one less layer of protection. And also because of that, there's labeling on the box that kind of shows off that it's the Steam Deck. Like there's labeling on the box that says, this is the 512 gigabyte Steam Deck. This is it right here. There's even a little bit of Valve references on the the side of the box that I did find cute. But like I said, if somebody were to stumble upon it on my porch, 
they would have found it and they would have jacked it immediately. They would have known exactly what it was. I, I know that that seldom ever, you know, changes anybody's mind from stealing packages from people's porches in the first place. But still, you know, to make it a little less obvious. But I do like the little winks and nods to Valve on the on the side of the box. If you look closely, you'll, you know, for those of you who have received the Steam Deck or are planning on receiving the Steam Deck, just visualize this. You get a very elongated hog dog style kind of box. But on the side, there's actual little designs, references to like... um. To, uh, there's uh, the I can't remember what the name of the cube is, but the cube from uh, Portal so with the heart and stuff like that. Uh, and then you ha you have the actual Steam Deck logo on the side of the box. So I, like I said, there's some personal branding there. Once you open it, you get the carrying case with a cardboard sleeve on it, the box with the charger in it. Uh, first steps, a little sl uh, slip, a uh, piece of paper slip, uh, uh, construction paper saying charge it in and turn it on and then follow the steps from there. Uh, so upon opening it, you I took out the Steam Deck. Let me talk about ergonomics first. You know, just kind of break down exactly how it feels in hand as far as first first technical hardware impressions. So from the first pictures that we re we received, you know, we saw that the thing looked to be massive. And then as more and more and more people got their early review units back at the beginning of February, they started to show pictures to kind of compare the scales and see the sizing of it. I think the most common um, uh, system that it was being compared to was, of course, the Switch because it's meant to be a portable gaming unit. Uh, and then subsequently, the people who had... And it's also the most accessible uh, unit or the most accessible handheld right now in the market. Uh, next up were the people that are huge enthusiasts of... Uh, emulators and you know portable uh, PC gaming units like the uh, IO Neo, I think it's called, or the Odin. Um, so different little emulators like that. They start to make size comparisons. Now, here me seeing it in person, the unit itself is huge. It it, it really is. But what I find fascinating is that despite being rather massive on the horizontal scale and compared to the Switch, it definitely shows its beefiness. It's not uncomfortable to feel in hand. It's weird. It's like a magic spell because visually it looks like it's probably going to be annoying on the hands and annoying on the wrists. But as I held it more and more in my hands, it actually is much more comfortable than perceived. Like it, it's a lot more comfortable than it looks. It's it's strange. Um, and that was gonna be a huge concern for me, considering where the placement of the joysticks are. Because as soon as I saw the joysticks on those pictures, I was like, that does not look comfortable. That I really wish that those things were lower. Turns out I am actually am able to get my thumbs over to the from the joysticks to the touch pads to the. Uh, actual face buttons and d-pad now I, I will probably say the face buttons it's funny i don't know maybe it's because my right hand is my dominant hand i have almost zero problem navigating the face buttons the trackpad and the joystick on the right side on the left side the trackpad and the joystick are fine it's the the, the d-pad that i i'm not gonna say i have trouble with i won't go as far as saying that but i do feel a little just something. I can't call it a strain or a sense of a, a discomfort, but just something in my left hand. And like I said, it could be because my left hand is like the least dominant hand. It's not my primary hand. 
Uh, but I think it's because of that, that when I touch the D-pad, I do feel something kind of off in, in my hand. I can still get through it. Like, I can still play, and I can still use the D-pad to navigate menus and, you know, play games and stuff like that. But as far as ergonomics, uh, that's probably the only thing that slightly stands out to me. The I will admit the triggers and the bumpers, they are easy to access as far as ergonomics, as far as comfortability. As far as how they feel in terms of quality, in terms of, uh, you know, actual polish with the hardware, with the technical hardware, as far as how the plastic feels, how the connections feel, it, I'm not, it's, it, it could feel a little better. They feel a little, I don't want to sound, make this sound too much of an insult, but a little bit on the Fisher pricey kind of angle as as well as also the actual plastic they use for the shell of the steam deck it doesn't feel too bad it still feels rugged it still feels like it could take a decent hit but i know that anything more than a few feet like any more anything higher than like three or four feet above the ground you drop it it is gonna break if it's only like a foot uh it'll probably it will definitely withstand that um but nevertheless you know the the plastic i think could be a little bit better reinforced as far as the actual outer shell and the plastic and the materials used within the triggers and the bumpers the face buttons are also a little bit on the mushy side they're not terrible but you know they don't feel too too bad but they could be you know like i said maybe units later down the line will probably get some kind of refinements in in this sense um but so far, as far as all of the physical capa uh, capabilities, all the technical stuff, as far as the hardware is concerned, I was the most surprised by the trackpads. Because the trackpads felt like non-responsive with the system off. As soon as you turn it on, something it kind of similar to that of the DualSense on the PlayStation 5. As soon as you turn on the Steam Deck, the touchpads activate. And then you actually start to get haptic feedback back from the trackpads. Uh, as if you're, you, you know, at the very beginning, before even loading up SteamOS, you can f hear scrolling through the touchpads as you kind of gla graze your finger across, or your thumb, rather, across the trackpad. You can feel it, you know, feeding back to you, like, in a scrolling sense. It's very difficult to explain, but you just feel the scroll as you move your thumb uh, across. Once you jump into SteamOS, that scroll disappears, but you then feel haptic feedback when you click the thumb, thumb pad to select certain things. And then that changes up as well if you want to customize the settings to actually feel the scroll whenever you move the your thumb across the trackpad or not. Same thing goes for the left one. Uh, of course, by default, the right one is going to be meant to be like your left click, to be like your dominant selection tool. And then the left one, because it's on the left hand, is going to activate more like your right click. So, you know, like when you right click stuff on, on Windows and you bring up the little menu to be like, oh, you want to delete this you want to copy this etc etc that the left trackpad is pretty much going to interpret that so as far as technical things like the, the, to me the biggest surprises were the trackpad and the sound capability i heard some people say that the sound on steam deck is trash i have no idea where they're coming from because these things are actually rather loud they're actually rather bombastic. Uh, you get the full sense of scale of the sound. Now, I, I know that they're not going to be the best. You know, they're not fully calibrated like fucking Bose or Beats by Dre or anything like that. I know that there's sound systems out there that are probably going to sound better on specific ha handhelds, especially the ones that you find on Amazon for like $1,300, $1,500, $1,500 a pop. But these definitely hold their own. They, they definitely... They're definitely beasts. Like it, it, I would honestly go on record to say they're better than the Switches. The sound speakers on the Steam Deck are significantly better than the Switches. 
Uh, and then as far as, you know, plugging in your headset and or pairing it with a Bluetooth uh, set as far as earbuds are concerned, you know, that depends on the quality of that set itself. But the onboard speakers for the Steam Deck are actually pretty beastie i would if i had to nitpick them i would probably say that they could use a little bit better on the base side that you know they can kind of come across a little tinny but i only experimented one game with it um so i could probably test around a couple of other games to see how those games sound but overall i'm as far as first impressions are concerned the sound kicked my ass and then the trackpads are rather Im- impressive everything else is pretty uh substandard as far as you know how you interact with a, a you know a gamepad uh on a handheld with the screen in the middle uh, you know the volume buttons are at the top they click in place the power button is on the top you hear a little whenever you turn things on so the feedback on that is it feels pretty good and even though i had my reservations as far as how i mentioned the quality of the plastic used for the shell it it's still feels durable and I still you know feel like I'm handling something that doesn't feel delicate especially with how thin the middle of the whole set feels because the it's it definitely gets a lot thicker around the handles and the ergonomics are not not too bad they're pretty good they could be better they're not the greatest but they could be better but still they hold their own and I don't feel I have yet to feel anything genuinely uncomfortable around my hands or on my my wrists I would probably say that the only little thing that I did notice during the, I want to say four or five hours that I've played with this thing thus far, is that it's even though it feels great in hands, I need to put emphasis on the plural there in hands, because you can it definitely as soon as you let go of one hand, then the weight, the size, and the ergonomics definitely kind of inverts into being kind of bad. Because, say for example, I let go with one hand because I'm like checking on my phone or trying to type something on my computer or I'm handling something else or what what have you. You know, I'm trying to do something else with, with my other hand. Yeah, let your mind course wherever it may want, even in the gutter. <laughs> but as soon as you do that, surprisingly, the weight then comes back to bite you. I start to feel the weight. Uh, and because you start to feel the weight, your your brain automatically wants to grip onto the Steam Deck tighter with your with the one hand that is on it. But in doing so subconsciously, I always press some kind of button, either a face button or the trackpad or the joystick. And inadvertently, I would select something that I didn't want to, either on SteamOS or on the Linux desktop. So that's one thing to probably mention as potential cause for concern. And Again, the reason why I said that I really wish to get my uh, to have gotten my impressions out a little earlier is because sadly, all of Wednesday, like I said, I unboxed the thing. I, I hung out with my girlfriend throughout the day, so I couldn't really unbox the the Steam Deck until I finally got home at night after showering. I managed to finally unbox it, you know, charge it up, press the power button. Setup, unfortunately, is what delayed my this podcast and ultimately my impressions to really get into the nitty gritty of the Steam Deck is because uh, setup was a, a little cumbersome because the initial steps were not too bad because it starts off with the welcome screen. You select your language, you select your time zone, you select your Wi-Fi. And then that's literally it. Three steps, and then immediately the Steam starts installing SteamOS, downloading SteamOS, downloading all the necessary updates, and then installing, just like you would with like a fucking computer or what have you. So you can imagine 
you know, me interpreting this as a simple process and then starting to get legitimately concerned when the Steam Deck would freeze on the installing screen multiple times. And when I say it's freezing, uh, I'm a little hyperbolic because it technically wouldn't freeze. It, the, you would still see like the, the the Steam logo on the main on the center of the screen uh, pulsate um, or pulse rather. Uh, so it will be like installing, 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 and pending. But it would always get stuck at like 90%. Or or it would say one second remaining. And it would stay on that screen. And either it would just stay on that screen and never move past it. Or the Steam Deck would restart from the very beginning. And I would have to go through the process of selecting English. Selecting my time zone. Selecting the Wi-Fi over and over again. And then going back to that screen. And it did this multiple times. It was already late at night. So I thought to myself, okay, let me do it one more time. Uh, before going to bed, and I'm going to leave it charged, leave it overnight. Maybe it's taking a long while to install. Thursday, I finally wake up. It's still on the installation screen, installing screen, one second remaining, and that immediately makes me go, uh-oh. Uh-oh, do I have a defective unit? So, uh, you know, I try it one more time. I do a couple of things. I do a force restart. I follow the prompts that that the Steam forums tell me about pressing down the power button and the volume down button simultaneously to factory reset the Steam Deck. It's still giving me the same issue. So finally, I contact Steam support. They don't respond to me right away, but I'm imagining they're taking care of an awful lot of tickets right now with the release of the Steam Deck. So I'm not, even though I'm kind of in a hurry, I understand what they're not responding immediately. So I'll just, you know, be idle literally like 20 minutes after I send out that ticket. Welcome to Steam to your Steam Deck. There's a screen on my Steam Deck saying, welcome to your Steam Deck. It finally goes through. And I'm like, God damn it. So it finally goes through, and I'm finally able to load up SteamOS. And Steam SteamOS on the Steam Deck is actually pretty in- intuitive. You know, once you sign into your Steam accounts, you put in your password and your email... I mean, there was my library. There's the store. It has the same kind of aesthetic, the same kind of layout that you would expect Steam to have. And so there were my games. It would tell you uh, on the page whether or not they're verified, playable, or unsupported. However, I will admit this kind of puts into question the overall verification system that Steam has in in play. (laughs) Because some, you know, I tested a good round of games that are in my library. And the best way that I can summarize all of this really quickly without going off on more tangents is that certain games that are supposed to be either verified or playable uh, have little caveats. And ironically, in a humongous ironic situation, the only two games that crashed on me happened to be Valve games. Left 4 Dead and Left 4 Dead 2. I tried both of those games out. I had to uh, change up the layouts as far as you know what what works as far you know as far as gameplay is concerned you know because obviously as soon as I load up the games and as soon as I load out a match um, I started you know tweaking with the with the gamepad with the buttons and the triggers and all that stuff it wasn't responsive and I had to tell the games manually to be like hey I'm using a gamepad not keyboard and mouse and then finally when I did that then it started to uh, respond to the joystick and respond to the triggers and and all that stuff. And so, but after like two or three minutes, almost at the exact same like clockwork time, uh, both Left 4 Dead and Left 4 Dead 2 would crash and would send me back to the SteamOS page. Even though those games are, uh, I think Left 4 Dead 1 is play- deemed playable and Left 4 Dead 2 is verified. 
It even shows up on the menu that says, great on deck. So I'm like, what the hell? And then to be even more ironic uh, to some extent, a game that is deemed unsupported, that is labeled unsupported, which gave me the impression that it's not going to work, works almost just fine. I played it for like an hour. It's still, it, it was still running at a smooth, crispy 60 frames per second, and the resolution, even on a 1280 screen like the Steam Decks, is looking pretty damn good, and that's Batman Arkham Origins. I, and it bums me out because not too long ago they had a oh my bad I bumped on the mic but uh, not too long ago they had a sale on the Rocksteady collection so uh, Asylum City and Night for like sixteen bucks down from sixty to sixteen or like fifteen something like that and now I regret not buying it because I was thinking about buying it to test it out on the Steam Deck only to then see on the page that it said unverified or un uh, 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 unsupported now I tried Arkham Origins it boots up. And like I said, 60 frames per second. The only thing that doesn't run 60 frames per second at a capped, even, consistent 30 frames is the cutscenes. Everything else runs smoothly. It's not the prettiest game, but then again, it's a 2013 game. So some textures are going to look a little uh, muddy and whatnot, but it's a 2013 game. It's almost 10 years old. Just the fact that it's a full console game that back in the day I played on my PS3 and now I'm holding it in my hand at a smooth 60 frames per second and every and also I didn't have to tweak any of the button layouts it just start started working right from the get-go and when I pressed uh, the trigger I would go into sneak mode when I would press the X button the you know the the left face button uh, he punched you know he dodged uh, with a triangle he did everything that I w- would have traditionally have done on the ps3 controller right out the gate I didn't have to reprogram anything so that is nuts, you know, that's so ironic that, again, that says it's verified, that's made by Valve, no less, crashes within a couple of minutes, but then Batman Arkham Origins just runs despite being labeled as unsupported. So, yeah, their their system, I yeah, now I'm going to question for, for the... the the validity of it, and now I'm definitely gonna look out for a sale on that Arkham collection. Uh, now knowing that it's possible that the, the damn thing might even still run despite being labeled as unsupported. Now I want to continue running some more tests. I definitely want to take advantage of this upcoming weekend to run more tests, and it's a it's gonna definitely take priority because a I definitely want to emphasize emulation because that's one of the things that I was uh, really ecstatic about the Steam Deck is being able to run emulation since it is a mini PC and you're it's running a Linux system. I want to see how I can run emulation uh, emulators and emulation ROMs on it, specifically for the niche channel, specific Spider-Man games and specific Batman games. Uh, to start things off, I want to see how it runs pretty much the Toby the Toby trilogy. So Spider-Man One, Spider-Man Two game, you know, with the pizza time and you delivering pizzas and whatnot from the from my GameCube days, and then from the PlayStation Three, Spider-Man Three. And I definitely want to make a video on that for the niche channel. I would probably say that it's a very good, uh, that would be a pretty uh, interesting piece of content that I'm looking forward to. That breaks away from the typical uh, McFarlane toys, uh, Batman figures, and the Spider-Man figures that I've been covering for the past couple of months. That Don't, don't get me wrong, they do well on the channel. But ever so often I want to throw in something else uh, new, something else video game related, something different, something unique. And I feel like creating a video that is all of, just specifically talking about how to emulate the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man games on the system 
would be uh, pretty interesting. And then, of course, later the next steps would be to how to run the Arkham games on the Steam Deck, whether it be through emulation or through uh, Steam OS with that collection on the on the actual Steam client, uh, and vice versa. The only reason why there might be a fork in the, uh, or a wrench in the in the gears here is because, sadly, like I mentioned before, due to my my financial situation changing up here with my loss of employment with with this new job or former job I, I, I should say god I sound like a broken record because I feel like I mentioned this enough, like, or like already two or three times on the podcast ever since I started back in September but anyways um due to that I can't keep the steam deck my initial gut reaction was going to be to return it as soon as I received it now like not even bother opening it because you know might as well send it as brand new as possible back to valve but then I thought, let me try asking my buddy, Surface Assassin, if he wants to buy it from me. And lo and behold, he wants to, like right from the get-go. I was actually genuinely surprised that he wants to. Um, so I was like, oh, okay, and this this works out great because this means that I can get the money that I need to hold me over, for, at least for the month of May, uh, to you know to cover you know expenses and bills and, and stuff like that. But not only is someone else getting the steam instead of just returning it back to to valve someone who genuinely wants the steam gets it and that someone happens to be someone that i know in real life which means that even though the steam deck will then be his i can you know, at least i i hope you know, i can't see him saying no unless circumstances change because he's out of town and he took it with him or something like that but i can Technically, ask him in the future, hey, can I borrow it for a video? Can I borrow it to see if I can emulate um, uh, uh, certain games, if I can you know, see how certain Batman games play on it, that's, uh, other Spider-Man games? Because obviously, past the Tro- Toby trilogy, I definitely want to see how it handles the Andrew Garfield games, Amazing Spider-Man and Amazing Spider-Man 2, how it handles the Beanox games, so Edge of Time, uh, Web of Shadows, Shattered Dimensions. Uh, and just see where we go from there. And same thing with Batman, older, you know, n- nostalgic Batman games like the NES, Super N- Nintendo ones, uh, uh, Batman Vengeance on GameCube or PlayStation 2, Batman Rise of Sin 2, Batman Dark Tomorrow, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And just, like I said, just kind of see what kind of other content I can create uh, from the Steam Deck. But li- like I said, right now, priority is to... Uh, at least tackle the Toby trilogy. Just focus on that, and then sell it to to my buddy Greg here in the next uh, week or so. Uh, he gets to keep it, but I'll ask him like, "Hey, in the future, I may need to borrow it for another potential uh, piece of content, another video or such." But right now, I just want to prioritize the Toby trilogy because I also that will definitely serve as a form of a litmus test to see how it handles emulation. And I'm definitely gonna take advantage here of this upcoming weekend, especially with not having to really worry about work because I don't have one, to then really, really get as deep and dirty into the Steam Deck. So outside of that Toby trilogy, outside of that Spider-Man content, I'm definitely also going to try to emulate other games uh, that span other libraries like Nintendo 64, other GameCube games, other PlayStation 2 games, other PS3 games potentially, see how they handle as far as frame rate, as far as graphical fidelity on something as thin as the Steam Deck, whether or not... and Pray to God that this thing does not overheat on me, which lately uh, it hasn't done. It hasn't overheated, but I definitely noticed that when you boot up something kind of hefty like like Spider-Man 3 or a very you know expansive game on SteamOS like Batman Arkham Origins, that battery drains. <laughs> Let me tell you, that battery definitely drains. It, it's, it was pretty consistent when I was just navigating through menus on desktop or on SteamOS, but as soon as I booted up a game, yeah, I started to see that battery icon slowly drain. 
uh, well, not slowly, quickly drain, and had to jump on my USB-C cable uh, rather quickly. So battery, I think on average is like somewhere between two or three hours. But like I said, I haven't run enough tests to really give you a firm measurement. And then as far as venting and, and cooling, you definitely feel the heat coming out of the top vent. Not so much on the back vent. There's two vents on the back and on the top. Uh, on the back, I don't really feel anything, but that was probably not where they wanted most of the air to come out of because that's where your hands rest. So you definitely feel that. Definitely feel it and hear it at the top. At the top, you can hear it kind of whirring. It's audible, but it's not loud. If that makes any kind of sense, like like it, let me put it to you this way: during normal active waking hours for the average person, uh, it sounds. Pretty standard. It, it, like I said, it sounds audible, but it's not loud. It's only loud if your house is already quiet by default. So I definitely noticed the loudness at a time like at 1 a.m., 2 a.m., where like everybody here in the house is asleep. And definitely that's where I'm like, okay, I can hear it now. But during the day when people, you know, are kind of like moving about here in my household as far as like the kitchen and cooking and moving around, going to the bathroom, whatever, it, it, it becomes almost like background noise that you almost don't even notice it, especially when you're starting to really get focused on playing on the Steam Deck. So that's where it all falls down to as far as how my impressions are with the Steam Deck. But like I said, I will definitely be trying as much as I possibly can to emulate as much as I can to probably test out other games built within SteamOS or natively or outside of SteamOS and put it through its paces so that you guys will then get much better impressions on next week's podcast because next week's when I tackle what I've been playing, I will definitely be covering the Steam Deck even further before I finally part with it. <laughs> but also with whatever new game that I'm going to be uh, uh, starting up brand new because and I beat Triangle Strategy. <laughs> I know that kind of pales in comparison to finally being able to talk about the Steam Deck and break it down, see how I feel, all that good stuff. But yes, I finally beat triangle strategy uh this week earlier this week god damn and i'm gonna have to make a full-blown confession here i'm gonna have to put my cards on the table yes i lowered the difficulty by a notch because there's actually like five difficulties you have not easy normal hard but then you also have very hard and very easy i just brought it down to easy from normal and take take it from me even on easy, there were a couple of battles I still lost because once I toggled it down to easy, I then came across a discovery, a little you know thing here where it's pretty much the actual range of damage getting mitigated, getting nerfed. And that's the only real thing that changes when you change the battle difficulty to easy going from normal to easy is that they're the enemies are able to take more damage and you're able to withstand more damage other than that the ai doesn't really i mean as uh, as far as i can tell in the battles that i toggled back to easy especially in the last hour or so because i was just so ready to finish the game i literally i looked at the clock there's an in-game clock and granted it's a strategy game with an awful lot of cutscenes, an awful lot of uh time spent in menus as far as allocating attribute points and leveling up your characters, upgrading their equipment, things like that. So there is an argument to be made as far as what is what constitutes as legitimate gameplay versus what what amount of time went towards the cutscenes. But there is an in-game clock and said clock rounded me to 51 hours in my playthrough when I rolled credits 
on triangle strategy. And you could also make the argument that wanting a game to end or being in a rush and kind of pushing yourself and pulling yourself to want to finish it and to get the credits is maybe not the greatest thing ever to say about a game. Like a lot of people... I have taken a Twitter. I've seen a couple of posts on Twitter saying that they don't want that, that they're at the doorstep of the final boss for Elden Ring, but they don't want to do it because they don't want their experience to end. Whereas I'm over here going, man, I'm ready for Triangle Strategy to wrap up. And and I think maybe it's the aesthetic, maybe it's the the genre of game being very turn based, because it's not just you know your turn and then their turn. You know you have all several turns for each of the pieces on the board. Uh, especially when there's an awful lot of enemies that you have to vanquish. Especially when the game starts pulling enemies out of its fucking ass just to prolong the battle more and more to the point of getting ridiculous. There were a couple of battles, and this is not not gonna lie, the little few moments that incentivized me to want to lower the difficulty. The, towards the end, they started to not only uh, OP enemies that I know I've killed before but now because the game is in its end game it's in its last act they ramp up the difficulty and the level and the just the overall durability of some of these forces enemies that I know I killed at the beginning of the game with ease even on normal difficulty and here they just nerfed it like it's the same style of enemy like a general uh, soldier generic ass soldier but at the end of the game uh, they kill me in like two hits in like two hits versus at the beginning of the game where they ki- where they don't kill me. I'm able to kill them not in two hits, but in a very uh, balanced sort of way. Like th- that's the thing that I was loving about the battles at the beginning. They were balanced. They kind of lose a little bit of balance towards the end. It's almost like, and here's the the deal is that as you get closer to the end, another thing that for me personally didn't 100% stick the landing is. The choi- where you end up on, on the ending because y- whoever plays this game is likely going to have a different ending than I did because that's one of the things that becomes a little clearer as you play the last half of this game is that you start to make choices via the skills of conviction that then take different path that kind of take a specific path de- in a fork in the road and it starts off with just two choices and generally you can kind of distinct the differences um to be like yeah I'm you know I'm feeling more compelled to go with this side and I'm going to try to convince as many people to be on my side so that the skills of conviction can tip in my favor And that was a cool system, but towards the end, uh, more and more people are not easily swayed, which, you know, that could be, you know, said here and there about whether or not I should have probably strengthened my convictions, I should have made better choices, I should have uh, leveled up my, you know, Sarah Noah, the main character's convictions, and that probably would have granted me better options, maybe I should have talked to more people. So that in and of itself inherently is not bad, it's just that, there's certain scenarios that play out that make me go, I feel like there's a no-win situation here. You're going to feel like shit for something rather than another. Like, there's no good ending or bad ending. There's going to be an awful lot of just overall encompassing gray. I ended up with an ending that I, I legitimately for a while thought it was going to be the good ending until the very end. I'm not going to go into specific spoilers, but there's a title card that says years later. And when I see that, I'm it's something in my heart, in my gut just says... Something tells me they're about to tell me that some shit did not end right, even though everything else looked like it was going to be cool. And sure enough, there's a tiny little epilogue towards the end that made that made it go well. Uh, not everybody is hunky dory, you know. People are, yeah, some people are still dying and struggling and dealing with shit. So 
yeah, just be ready in case you are in the process of playing this game. Make sure you're you're to, you're you're making the choice that feels right for you, but just know that you're not gonna walk away with any good ending or bad ending. And because of that, you know, you could argue that this is probably their sort of way of trying to get replay value to make be like, hey, you got now a reason to play through the game again, not just because you are granted the option to do a new game plus at the end when you roll credits, but also because you have these choices that involve the skills of conviction that could have gone a different path. Maybe you could have saved a different character. Maybe another character would have stayed in your party as opposed to leaving. Uh, maybe you would have fought a different uh, nation or you would have fought a different final boss, etc., etc. And so it, there is some curiosity there. But sadly, it falls in the camp of me simply just wanting to look it up on YouTube as opposed to going... I don't feel compelled necessarily, at least anytime soon right now, to want to replay this game a second time. Because like I said, the turn-based stuff, it's one thing for it to just be two people, you know, having one turn versus another. It's another for more and more pieces to be adding to the board, especially when, like I said, the game starts pulling units out of its ass and they just appear on the board and the game's... On normal difficulty, each battle will last like 15-20 minutes. So if you weren't ready for what was up ahead, um, then you're screwed and you're not properly prepared. And I know that scratches certain people's itch, especially people who love games like Final Fantasy Tactics and stuff like that. They're going to absolutely adore Triangle Strategy and I can easily tell. Me, at the end, like I said, it started off kind of blech because of the story was so weak. And then in the middle, the gameplay got good. The story got good. There were twists and turns. People were dying. It was free. It was legitimately Game of Thrones. Uh, when I say Game of Thrones, I don't mean at that caliber of like season three and season four Game of Thrones. Because I know a lot of people consider that to be like the peak Game of Thrones. I'm not going to go on that level. But I'm just saying in terms of the way that they would discuss diplomatics while at the same time bringing about the, the the tide of war and then tying that into the gameplay and making characters that, like I said, seemed boring. Like, at the beginning, I thought Sarah Noah, the main character you play as, was boring as fuck. And then here by the end, I'm allocating so many skill points and stuff to him because I was legitimately starting to care for him. I was like, oh my god. And then characters that I thought were kind of badass at the beginning... There were still interesting, complex characters at the end, but they were also taking a turn for the dickhead. For the, for the, <laughs> there's one character in particular that I thought was cool at the beginning, especially because of the voice actor. And then at the end here, I'm kind of like, man, you were kind of a prick. You, you, you did, you, you're not so, um, on the good side either. But that's what's, you know, fascinating about these characters. They're all interesting because they're not completely you know, good and they're not completely evil. Even some of the characters that you thought, you know, were on the evil side, they kind of have something within them that's a little morally ambiguous or kind of uh, twisted around that, you know, I was thinking about going, yeah, I guess this guy or this girl is not all that bad. They're just, you know, kind of doing what they were perceived to be right or wrong. And for the most part, that works. And the reason why I say for the most part is because, again, some dialogue is a little on the trite side. Some delivery of that dialogue from certain voice actors, you could tell they probably had them for like a day. Or maybe they had to share duties. Maybe they had to <clears throat> voice one of the main characters. But then on the side, they had to voice these other characters and they were probably tired. They cut them on an off day. I don't know. But they kind of deliver certain lines in a way where you're like, hmm, really? That That's the only take that they used? It wasn't terrible, but they could have gone for a second take. You get what I'm saying? Um, and like I said, not every single story uh, layout pans out. There's some things towards the end that are kind of wrapped up in a way where it, they leave it on the narrator to wrap up as opposed to actually having like a cutscene between characters. So 
yeah, like I said, that then combined with how the game just difficulty spikes at at the end, even on normal difficulty, in a way where it just becomes a grind fest. Because I was, and and it's because of this notion that I was feeling it to be a grind fest that then started making me say phrases like, "Oh, I'm ready for this game to be over." That I left that easy toggle on because I did it for just one match, and my initial feeling my initial uh you know mindset was going to be to just toggle it to easy for that one battle but then toggle it back to hard i mean i'm sorry back to normal um afterwards and there was an awful lot of cutscenes so i kind of forgot about it and then i did one battle on easy i thought to myself oh wow that was that was uh you know i first try i'm pretty proud of myself i felt i felt pretty proud of myself and pretty happy only to then kind of get the the energy just sucked it right out of me when I went into the options menu and finally learned that I left the easy toggle on. I'm like, whoa, no shit. That's why I beat on the first uh, easy mode. So I toggled it back to normal, and sure enough, the next battle, just whooping my ass with no uh, quarter, as the characters like to say in the game. Um, it, it, but still, in a, in a way that I just didn't feel very balanced because the AI, again, in terms of their decisions, in terms of where they place pieces on the board, what moves they do, what uh, healing factors they use, you know, what kind of strategy they implement, didn't really feel like it got changed toggling the battle difficulty from easy to uh, normal. The only thing I felt changed was how much damage the enemies take versus how much damage you're able to withstand. So when you go from normal to easy, or, or in one direction or the other, if you go on the easier direction, you're able to take more damage, and they're able to, and they're able to uh, withstand less damage or more damage. No, less damage. They're you're able to dish out more damage, and they get killed quicker. But their strategy stays about the same. Like I noticed on certain battles where I started off playing the battle on normal, and I started, and then I played it on easy, and I started to notice that strategy was kind of the same. They weren't like. They weren't moving pieces and then not attacking. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, they st- they didn't pull attacks. They were still attacking on the same level. They were still playing out the same strategy. They were still moving the the units in the same kind of format. The only thing that changed was how much damage they were taking versus how much damage I was able to take, uh, as far as my units were concerned. And I gotta be honest, that's a little unsatisfying when you change the difficulty. When I change battle difficulty on a tactic, tactics turn-based strategy game such as this, I expect the actual mentality, the AI, to actually change up the strategy and lower the difficulty of said strategy. I wanted the strategy to actually pull back. Uh, and just by a little, I don't want it to be very easy to where I'm just coasting on through. I, you know, I wanted to sense the actual uh, AI. AI's mindset toggle along with the difficulty and it didn't and that was ultimately uh, disappointing to learn that that was ultimately the only thing that they really really changed and seeing as how grindy it got there towards the end along with like I said the ending feeling a little bit on the mid-tiers kind of side uh, it didn't 100% stick the landing but I know that there's an awful lot of other games out there uh, especially from AAA developers that don't stick the landing in any part of the game whether it be in act one act two or, or act three so though it, it may not end up in my top five let alone top 10 
I can legitimately see a game like Triangle Strategy ending up at least in my honorable mentions. And in, if you're a huge fan of SRPGs, strategy RPGs, and you come from a, a, a legacy of games that you absolutely adore, like Final Fantasy Tactics, you recently liked Octopath Traveler, uh, this is more or less a spiritual successor to Octopath Traveler uh, because of the art style and because of the turn-based stuff, even though it's not meant to be... Uh, Turn it's not meant to be asymmetrical strategy as far as like the pieces on the board. It's meant to be Octopath Traveler is meant to be more like a Pokemon Pokemon style kind of back and forth as far as the battles are concerned. I, you know, not to trivialize it by calling uh, comparing it to Pokemon, but I'm just saying in terms of like the back and forth, it's kind of like tennis as opposed to the actual chess that is triangle strategy. And because of that, if you're a huge fan of that style of gameplay, yeah, I still wholeheartedly recommend Triangle Strategy, even though I wasn't able to gravitate with it as much as I was doing with it in the second act. So first act had problems as far as the story. Battles were good, but the story was kind of black, kind of middle of the road. The second act of this game, I was just wholeheartedly in. Everything was being checked off in the best way possible as far as story character plot and then gameplay was thoroughly balanced and then at the end we kind of swapped roles with act one where the story was at almost just as good they made some decisions that i didn't really vibe with but it was just as good as it was in the second act but the gameplay then turned into like i said a grind fest that i had no choice but to toggle it back to easy so that I can wrap things up, finally give you guys my final impressions, be done with this game, move on to other things like maybe Dying Light 2, Elden Ring, Tunic. I know we got some other things coming out and some other things that are already out. My physical copy of Sifu should be here in the next couple of weeks, so I'm probably going to be able to jump into Sifu. Um, and, and, of course, I wanted to give you guys my impressions on the Steam Deck, and I needed time to thoroughly play and, and tinker around with that. So I needed to get Triangle Strategy out of the way. And in doing so, I then discovered that toggling the difficulty only toggles the damage, doesn't really toggle the actual um, the actual AI and the actual strategy that the computer uh, utilizes against you. And that was kind of disappointing to to realize so all in all i mean i don't like to do number ratings for almost anything these days as far as like movies or games or even action figures are concerned like i do with the niche channel but if i had to if i absolutely had to it's somewhere in the high sevens low eights for me where like i said it's going to be definitely mentioned in my honorable mentions as something that will probably go under slight slightly underrated as the year goes on especially being an exclusive to the nintendo switch but definitely something that should not be missed for tact tactical rpg game fans uh, such as the ones for final fantasy tactics definitely pick this one up <laughs> I am now going to be getting into something I guess you can kind of call the Marvel segment. I was going to say Marvel Hour, but I feel like the whole podcast is going to be an hour, maybe an hour plus, maybe even two, because there's actually quite an awful lot that we're covering on this docket, so I figured, you know what, we, we might as well burn through this. But one little segment here that I want to de dedicate to literally back-to-back -back Marvel topics, one of which is Moon Knight. I talked about it on the last podcast where I was trying to kind of approach where I wanted to kind of 
tackle Moon Knight, kind of like the way I tackled Hawkeye and then a couple of other Marvel shows on the podcast here, because then I could just kind of ramble on about them and not be limited to just 240 characters on Twitter, um, minus a couple of like little quick impressions. Like, for example, this week with episode four, I went on Twitter and just mentioned a quick little blurb, but, but here I can actually like talk about it in the fullest sense that I've been meaning to. Um, and of course, you know, with episode three, I, on the last podcast, I mentioned that I had only watched uh, two episodes where I had yet to have watched episode three. And I told myself, okay, after three, I'm going to do a full review of those first three episodes. That way, episodes four through six, I can then do like a uh, wrap up. Uh, unfortunately, because I was sick and because I skipped out on last week, we now have to, I need to now combine episodes one, two, three, and four into this little segment here. So I'm going to try not to drool on too, too long because there's just, there's quite an awful lot going on in these four episodes. So I'm not going to go into the play-by-play. I, I, I'm not. You know, there's just an awful lot going on here, especially since the synopsis of the overall show is, in fact, that you got this uh, guy, really. I, I th- That's the best that I can do. I can't say character named this because, event- effectively, he starts off as a character named Stephen Grant, who is a uh, British gift shop uh, employee uh, over in a museum in London, who then gets involved, who then starts hearing voices due to disassoci- disassociative I- uh, identity disorder, DID. Uh, you know, kind of like without going into spoilers, let's just say that there's certain properties out there that are huge cult hits, like Mr. Robot and Fight Club, and they've tackled this kind of topic before, only now we're finally dealing with it in the Marvel Cinematic Universe or in the TV Universe. And so this is basically, and here's the thing, I'm not saying that the show is tackling it for the first time. The comics did from the get-go, I know that. Um, But he presumably starts off as Stephen Grant, only to discover that one of his identities that he's sharing the body with is a mercenary named Mark Spector, who made a de- pretty much made a deal with an Egyptian god to don a suit and become the uh, the anti-hero because he's not so much a hero as much as he is more so of an anti-hero named Moon Knight. And so, as Stephen Grant and Mark Spector kind of t- butt heads constantly, they're trying to figure out uh, how to you know make sure that Mark Spect- Mark's uh, deed is done as conscious avatar. While at the same time, someone out there named Arthur Harrow, played by Ethan Hawke, is trying to stop him. That's pretty much the general synopsis here. Except the four episodes have been—I don't want to say a slow burn. It's just that a lot of people were very um, bequeathed by the first couple of episodes because it literally just jumps right into the get-go. It really just throws you right in. It pretty much puts the lens on the plot from the perspective of Steven in the way that it literally, when he blacks out, we black out. As far as like just jumping ahead and be like, what the hell's going on? The way that he's asking those questions, we're asking those questions along with him. I find that thoroughly effective because uh, some people didn't vibe with it. I remember seeing some pretty lukewarm reviews for episode one. And then when I watched episode one, I was like, I like that a whole lot better than just a six out of 10 or seven out of 10. Like I saw some people give it. I was like, I thought that was more like an eight out of 10. I was like, oh, shit. Um, so I was along with the ride from the get-go, maybe it's because I like, you know, this is going to sound potentially messed up, and I apologize in advance, but uh, characters with DID and how it, it's able to tackle the subject on a mature level while at the same time being a very captivating narrative uh, device, such as in the case with shows like Mr. Robot and Fight Club, like I mentioned before, I'm a sucker for it. I, I, I love 
stories about that when it comes to duality. Because even though DID is the more clinical, um, is the more clinical uh, version. Yeah, you know, DID is a legitimate, you know, disorder. Uh, it's you know, on the extreme case that gets diagnosed, that needs to be treated. It's a legitimate mental uh, handicap, a mental illness. I know that, but let's also not pretend that all of us. You know, just like just like Tyler Durden even said in Fight Club, uh, we all talk to ourselves, you know, in some capacity or another. Of course, what kind of uh, prevents us from being uh, diagnosed with a legitimate illness is that we recognize that we are talking to ourselves. We know that we, you know, if for those of us, at least, well, I, I, I'm still trying to figure it out myself. But for those of us who um, uh, aren't necessarily diagnosed... You know, we're just talking to ourselves just to kind of have some kind of appeasement, some kind of relief with ourselves to be like, okay, what would you do in this situation? You know, we all do it. You know, let's not beat around the bush. We all do it. Um, So that's why I've always been fascinated with that angle. And that's why Moon Knight is really gravitating with me because now it's, you know, it has that MCU coat of paints with the suit and all that stuff. But it's able to make me feel very compelled by Steven Grant and Mark Spector respectively like I I love both of these guys inside of the same body these per- two personalities going toe-to-toe with each other across these four episodes that I've watched uh, so far so I love that aspect uh, about the show already in and of itself and I think what really helps me vibe with the whole more questions than answers at the beginning is that it's a show if it was a movie and we had to wait for the sequel to get answers, that's probably in the that's probably not going to be coming for like another two or three years time. Then maybe that formatting would probably given me some pause and made me go, yeah, this is this is not it, Chief. But for a show that I literally just had to wait a week for to then just watch in the convenience of my own home, I think that kind of helps me digest it a little bit better. So when that first episode dropped and so many people were like, what the hell is going on? I like that. And because of the format that it's presented in, I think I was able to swallow that pill a lot easier. Um, especially when, like I said, as I got sick and I it was kind of like, you know, it was, I was starting to fall a little bit behind on episodes. I was able to get to, I think um, me and the girlfriend actually watched episode two a little bit on the late side. I think we saw it on Saturday. So that when three dropped, it was just four days later. So we got more answers to kind of, fit us into that um and there's like like i said several things about the show that really really work when uh, Stephen grant gets his own version of the suit mr knight i know a lot of people are making comparisons to being pretty much a white deadpool because of the way that his mask is shaped but i like that he gets his own suit i like that he's he in and of itself creates a duality with moon knight himself as well and so so many things are working really really well about the show thus far the only two things that bug me about the show, um, and it's legitimately just two things. One is a very technical, objective thing that I've talked. Well, I haven't really talked talked to some other people, but um, the you know my buddy Surface Assassin says that he has his own theory as to why this is the case, and I noticed that this wasn't really a problem in episode four. But then again, I have uh, counter arguments that. But the technical thing that I'm not liking about Moon Knight thus far has been some of the visual effects. Um, it's almost, I, and I tweeted about this again, if you want to check me out on Twitter at dark spider, David, but one thing that has just popped up, especially in the first two episodes is how the visual effects are literally night and day, literally like almost every visual effect shot that takes place during the day looks like shit. 
I'm sorry, and I, I thankfully I'm not crazy. I did see some people on Twitter saying that yeah, that some effects do not look all that great in the daytime. To me, the sequence that stands out to me as being kind of choppy and needed probably a couple a couple of extra renders in the computer was the chase scene, was the um a cupcake truck chase scene with the logs and the the stuff on the on the road in episode one. That whole sequence just. It looked legitimately fake to me. I never bought that Stephen Grant was driving that thing for a second, unfortunately. However, when we switch on over to nighttime sequences that involve Moon Knight, that involve visual effects, specifically the set piece at the end of Episode 3 involving the starry sky, looks amazing. So I'm like, yo, are, are are there literally like two effects houses or are they doing this on purpose? My buddy Service Assassin argues that there's probably a purposeful, purposeful reason as to why it is that they're doing this. So who, who knows? Maybe we'll see that kind of be thoroughly explained here in the last couple of episodes. Uh, specifically, Episode 4 also had some decent effects, but the majority of Episode 4 takes place inside of a very dark tomb at nighttime. So there goes that 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 argument that supplemental fact that nighttime effects for some reason on on um on moon night look a whole lot better and you can also argue that almost every visual effects artist will tell you that will tell you that visual effects will always regardless of effects house regardless of engine is always going to look better at nighttime because you're literally seeing less detail more uh, less detail more details being hidden and covered away by shadows and by darkness therefore everything is just going to automatically look better than in the in the daytime it's why so many if you really think about it and unfortunately the mcu is kind of a culprit to this look how many action sequences especially final battles final climax climactic sequences in the past like 10 marvel movies take place at nighttime either they take place at nighttime or they play take place during the daytime but it just so happens to start getting cloudy or rainy. Like, literally. Like, I'm thinking about Thor Ragnarok and Shang-Chi because those are the ones that I'm like, oh, those were during the daytime? Yeah, and then conveniently a bunch of clouds start forming around and it gets super muddy and cloudy and apocalyptic. And here come the shadows. So, there they are. So, yeah, I could I could see that argument being presented. So, again, that's my objective uh, nitpick, my main object, uh, objective and technical issue. The much more subjective one that I don't th- is going to bother us, several other people, especially casual viewers, I'm sorry, a whole lot less. Like, I can see the casual viewer just not being bothered by this, but to me, I'm like, well, you know, I've seen enough movies, especially hearkening back to Indiana Jones, which I know that this movie kind of um, both parodies, especially with episode four, and also pays homage and, and, and uh, you know, harkens back to that classic time of being able to go into tombs and be fascinated with archaeology again especially episode four but i also didn't like how mcguffin heavy the first three episodes not so much four because we're already into it you know we're really into the nitty-gritty but episodes one through three were always focused on a specific item like oh we need to get this we need to get that we need to get this to the to the that and then get that to the this and I was hoping that the characters would drive the story a whole lot more, better than the objects. I felt like we were relying a little bit too much on the MacGuffins. It looks like we're starting starting to kind of drive away here with Episode 4. Now, David, why are you mentioning Episode 4 so much? Not just because it's the most recent episode that has debuted, but it's also a little bit of a... I don't want to say revelation, but rather an epiphany that I had that makes me go, yeah, that thoroughly explains a lot. Because a running gag on the internet, um, which I also took to Twitter to kind of uh, expound on, 
is that everybody believes that the fourth episode of almost every Marvel show, especially the ones that only have six episodes in their seasons, uh, are bangers, are like certified bangers. Like every episode four has something, is either awesome or has something in it that is completely awesome and turns the story in a completely different direction. And I I thought about it and I thought about it. I'm like, I think I know why, because it's six episodes, which means divided into three, you got two episodes per act. And Marvel has figured out the formula that has been there since the dawn of cinema, which is the three-act structure, Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. And at the end of each act, there has to be a turning point, a point where the story changes in a way that our characters cannot reverse the effects of. Uh, and most of the time, it's much more on a subtle level between the transition to, from Act 1 to Act 2, but from Act 2 to Act 3, it, the the transition, the turning point, is much more drastic in a, in a way that 9 times out of 10 takes our characters and puts them at their deepest, lowest point so that then when they hit their stride in the, in the third act and they rise to the occasion in the climax, we root for our protagonists, we have our final battle, and then we have our conclusion and our resolution to then gives, give us the credits. That's literally the structure for every single movie ever made, or at least 95% of the movies uh, out there. Uh, there's only a couple that probably don't follow this structure because they want to you know change it up and you know they want to be all artsy fartsy breathless from french cinema uh mind you <laughs> i'm sorry uh, i had to take that uh that uh, very posh jab that i learned in film school unfortunately but that's generally the structure that almost every kind of story not even just film but you know film takes full advantage of it probably the most but ever since you know aristotle that's always been the the, the storytelling structure ever ever since the, the the times of Aristotle. So Marvel has figured out that if you make your seasons only six episodes, you can pretty much have your three-act structure right there encompassed every two episodes. And that's why at the end of every fourth episode, something huge happens that everybody's talking about because we're now entering the third act. And that's the formula that Marvel has nailed down. And it looks like there's no exception here with Moon Knight. We've seen it in uh, shows before with Falcon and the Winter Soldier. The end of the fourth episode has Walker going crazy. Um, the end of the fourth episode for uh, well, for the fourth episode overall for What If was the Doctor Strange episode. Even though that it, it, actually no, never mind. I was gonna say that was uh, an anthology series, but not so much towards the end there. And sure enough, Doctor Strange's uh, story in the fourth episode did provide. The information and the material that we needed to then get our, you know, our final climactic battle at the end of the What If uh, show, and potentially uh, give us some details as to where Multiverse of Madness is going to be going. Uh, and then going back to Hawkeye, the end of the fourth episode. Spoilers, in case you guys haven't seen these shows, but the end of the fourth episode of uh, Hawkeye, Yelena enters the mix, and now she's uh, a power player as far as trying to, you know, kill uh, Hawkeye and exact her revenge. Uh, and then what, what else? Am I, I was gonna say One Division because I know that the end of the fourth episode was when Wanda finally throws out Monica, and we get the explanation as to how Monica got there and all that stuff. Loki, uh, we figure out that you know again spoilers for Loki, but with Loki we find out that um the time lizards, the you know the people that were the keepers of time or whatever they were called, they were just robots. It was just all a ploy. Loki and Mobius seemingly get killed, but then we find out that Loki got transported to the world where he meets the other Lokis in the post credit scene. That was the fourth episode. Turning point, again. 
And we do get a turning point here. Now, Moon Knight is relatively uh, new that I'm actually going to not spoil Moon Knight yet because we're still in the running here. So we're still in that sensitive area. But the end of episode four definitely goes in a direction where I'm like, okay, I uh, I am thoroughly liking this, especially with that final shot is a big what the fuck. Um, but of course, people who probably follow the comics and um, follow the you know uh, Egyptian uh, mythology and Egyptian lore are probably gonna know exactly what's going on. Um, there's even one little Easter egg that I'm familiar with. I don't really read the comics too much, but I am a little versed on some Moon Knight mythology, and there's a little something towards the end. Uh, involving something shaking. Uh, that's all I'm going to say. Something shaking. And I'm like, guys, come on. Stop teasing it. Let it out. Um, it, so I'm, I'm hoping that maybe we'll see that come to fruition in the last uh, two episodes here. But overall, yeah, episode four was definitely a solid episode. Considering that it's missing an element that we, we've been seeing in the first three episodes. And it's pretty much the poster child of the show overall so to see it not be present at all in episode four i was like "Mm, is that gonna be a problem it ended up benefiting the episode overall so up until this point yeah like i said my two main issues is that we can hopefully you know rectify this in the last two episodes but i didn't like how mcguffin heavy the first half of the overall season has been and then on a technical level, the visual effects, even though they are getting better, especially with how much darker and nighttime heavy the the uh, sequences are becoming, but they were very light and de- night and day where, like I said, it was 50-50. The daytime stuff looked kind of shitty, but the nighttime stuff looked better. Um, so, but that was, like I said, on the much more technical side. Overall, though, the show has been solid. And I'll probably say it's probably one of my highlights of the Marvel Disney Plus shows. Um I'll probably go on record to say I I think so far. It's very difficult to rank it because, again, we still have the last act, if you will, episodes five and six left to tackle. But I would probably say right now this might be ranking above Hawkeye. I I want to say, I it, honestly, I think that's the only show I'll put it above. And even, and even I like Hawkeye. Like, so far, quote-unquote, Hawkeye is the worst. But like I said, that's a humongous quote. That's not even, like... It's not even bad, especially with the last two or, th- uh, like two or three episodes, like episodes three through through six stuck the landing. The one through two, um, I was a little kind of like, eh, I don't know if I'm vibing with this, to be honest, but thankfully it hit its stride. Uh, I think it's because of that. Whereas the thing that I r- I'm really, really loving, genuinely loving about Moon Knight is how consistent it's been. Like uh, the, all, all the way across, there's certain things that, like I said, like the things that I pointed out that I didn't like. But overall, I'm I'm getting a stronger sense of consistency with Moon Knight than I've done with any of the most recent Marvel shows. So that's pretty gnarly. That's pretty crazy. Um, and I, doing my math here, it's looking like Moon Knight just happens to have its finale on the same week that Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness debuts. So I wonder if it's going to be a tie. I do know that in interviews, Oscar Isaac and Ethan Hawke confirmed that the reason they're even involved with the project was how it's not connected to the MCU uh, on a grand scale. Like, it takes place in the MCU, but it's not connected. Like, there's not going to be a connection. So it's possible that we might not even see that to begin with. But eh, at the same time, the timing is perfectly lined up that on the first week of May, we get... The bit is it's a huge it's a huge week because we get the finale for Moon Knight and then that just two days later or one day later if you're seeing it Thursday night, 
Doctor Strange and Multiverse Madness drops. So that's going to be a pretty impactful uh, beginning of May. At the beginning of June, we have Miss Marvel, which just recently got a brand new poster. It's the typical like floaty Photoshop job, but I really like the color palette. Uh, so if you guys haven't seen it already, just do a quick Google search. It's a pretty decent poster. Like I said, I just don't like how it's doing the typical Photoshop arrangement of, of people. But I also like the color palette that they used. And then another month later, at the beginning of July, we have our newly trailered Thor Love and Thunder. And that's pretty much the other portion that I wanted to talk about, part of this Marvel segment. And this trailer was long awaited because finally, after breaking the streak with the recent release trailer by Taika, Waititi, and Marvel Studios respectively, Thor Love and Thunder was going for the record of having the shortest gap between this first trailer and the movie's release in July. We're at the end of April. the Towards the end of April, and we just got the trailer, I think on the 18th, Monday the 18th. Movie comes out July 8th. Now, if this was, <laughs> this is what I was thinking about. If this was any other studio, the literally any other studio, because this kind of reminds me also of the Resident Evil movie. I remember the Resident Evil movie, the Welcome to Raccoon City, which I have not watched and I probably won't watch because I heard it's shit. Uh, and, and here, this is the point that I was, I'm trying to make is that typically when a studio takes this long to release a trailer for a movie that's just around the corner like the Resident Evil movie where the movie was coming out in November and then the tra- that first trailer didn't drop until like either August or September somewhere around there but the movie is supposed to come out like the week of Thanksgiving I'm like yo that's in three months there's no trailer yet and finally they debuted a trailer and it's it's like okay this could like i said for you any other studio beyond marvel this either means that they have this typically means that the movie's shit and they're trying not to show much they're just trying to not build up too much marketing because they're like we're just gonna dump this but when it's marvel the instinct now especially with their success rate the, the first thing we come to mind is like okay what are they trying to hide? What What is it about this movie that they can't potentially show? And we not only get a new trailer for... Uh, we barely, we are barely getting a trailer for Love and Thunder just a, like just under three months from the l- release of the film in July 8th. And it's not being delayed. You know, they're still setting in stone. It's coming out July 8th. So that's pretty gnarly. But the trailer itself is also the most sincere teaser trailer we have gotten from not just Marvel but pretty much any big budget studio film the trailer is only a minute and a half it's a very brisk minute and a half it doesn't show much it doesn't really tackle too much of the story it doesn't really give us too many visuals except for the um, usual flashy stuff that Taika Waititi and the producers and the writers are trying to uh, trying to approach as far as this kind of 80s influence aesthetic with how fantastical everything looks um, the trailer and as well as the synopsis and what we've heard to tackle is seemingly going to be tackling Greek mythology, not just Norse. I mean, we saw a little snippet of Zeus literally holding pieces of a, of a thunderbolt and we see the behind him. Apparently he's going to be played by Russell Crowe, but we don't really get a full on first direct look at him. We just see him from behind, uh, Thor, like I said, just kind of gazing at certain things. He's traveling a certain realm using Stormbreaker as like a bridge, as like a little like tether, uh, while he's stupidly smiling. We get an explanation as to why he's super buff now. Um, you see him at the beginning there working with the chains. Like I see some fuckers do at, uh, at, um, 
at uh, Planet Fitness while trying to show off like, yeah, with the ropes, except here Thor's doing it with uh, chains while wearing. And some people pointed this out. I didn't notice, but I did. I noticed that there was some writing. I just didn't know what the writing said. But apparently, if you look closely on his hat, it says World's Strongest Avenger, hearkening back to uh, Thor Ragnarok. So that was pretty, pretty nifty. Uh, but yeah, overall, like I said, it's just snippets of all this. At the beginning, he's narrating, saying that he's trying to figure out who he is. Um, so it's cool that they're staying consistent with his existential crisis that he was dealing with in the overall plot of both Infinity War and Endgame. Um, I know that not everyone, like a lot of, this is a huge point of contention. I don't mind it so much, but I can see, like I can definitely, uh, understand why people don't you know really vibe with this very well and why they might have an issue with this of how serious you know like thor ragnarok brought him to a comedic level with taika Waititi's staple of uh, a style of humor but then infinity war and endgame gave him an arc that people kind of made that kind of made people uncomfortable that we were kind of laughing at him in uh especially endgame where he decided where he you know made him look you know he uh, gained the weight, he lost his confidence, he, he did all that stuff, and people felt uncomfortable that there were certain scenes that were treating this as a humoristic thing, because people were like, yeah, you know, it's being played up for last, but behind the veneer here, he's legitimately depressed, and people go through really tough things when they're dealing with this kind of sort of thing, you know, they start drinking, like I said, they grow a gut, just like Thor was, except the movie played it out for laughs. It looks like it's good to see that Love and Thunder is probably going to take that and actually make it a focal point on the synopsis. Uh, but rest assured that it, it is kind of interesting to see how both Ragnarok and this it has that Watiti style of humor. But then you go back to Infinity War and he, even though he has a couple of cracks, especially when he meets the Guardians, he has his, you know, sincere, you know, you know, like dark well i don't want to say dark but really really serious moments like where he you know thinks he got thanos and he's like what did you do um and then at the beginning where he loses loki and as well as pretty much all of uh his uh populace of of um of uh asgard that were aboard on that ship that didn't that didn't board you know that didn't evacuate you know like all all that stuff is just kind of like yeah it's weird to see the stark contrast between the style of thor we got in ragnarok and we're probably going to get love and, here in love and thunder and in the way that he's treated in those two back-to-back films especially in endgame where like i said he's got the gut but also at the beginning before we jump to five years where we see him actually be super legit raged out at at thanos that he didn't even let him finish his sentence and cut off the head i went for the head um and you see him just walking away all feeling kind of empty you know feeling like without purpose so yeah i over the course of time i've definitely understood like i said i don't feel as strongly but i do understand how people could have a problem with this so my aspiration or my hope is that love and thunder still retains the humor especially with the injection of the guardians while at the same time Hopefully not taking, hopefully not taking for granted that the trailer did have narration of Thor saying, "I'm trying to find out who I am." Just like he, you know, staying consistent with what he was saying at the end of Endgame, where he's like, "For the first time in uh, th- a thousand years, I have no path." <laughs> and then he's like, "I do have a ride, though." <laughs> that always cracked me up. I don't know why, but it's just a funny cut where he's like, "I have no path. I do have a ride, though." And it just cuts to Rocket being like, "Come on, move it or lose it." Where we I don't have all day. Uh, I don't know why that little 
brief moment. There's there's no joke there, and yet it makes me laugh. I don't know, just the way he says it. Um, but yeah, I'm very thoroughly interested to see how they take his his character in that direction. While at the same time, like I said, the trailer teases many different things. Guardians' uh, involvement. It doesn't look like they're going to be fully, fully involved. It, it, it looks like they're going to have an interesting dynamic. But the trailer did tease, unless they're rearranging scenes in a way that you know Marvel sometimes likes to do in order to throw us for a loop. But it kind of looks like it, we might not see the Guardians for the full entirety of the film. It looks like maybe we might start with them in like the first act and then somewhere within the 30 or 40 minute mark, they're going to disappear and Thor's going to go his own way with Korg. Um, the trailer kind of hints at that, that the Guardians are going to be in it, but somewhere down the other way, they're going to go their separate paths. Maybe uh, uh, Peter finds out where Gamora is at and that's the that leads to that shot of the ship you know, jumping through space and Thor just kind of watches them leave. I think something like that is going to break down uh, and then, of course, the trailer ends with a tease at Lady Thor, or the Mighty Thor, uh, a.k.a. Jane Foster's Thor. Why she is becoming Thor, I know there's an explanation in the comics, but uh, interested to see how it, it does it here in the film. I don't mind her be, being in the movie, although I saw some people already memeing that shot and switching her helmet for Peacemaker's helmet. Like, oh my god, and it's seamless too. Like, I didn't even look, tw- I had to look three times because I'm like, wait, wait a minute. And they did that. The internet wins again. But aside from that, I I am interested to see how her involvement is going to transition her over into my Thor and whether or not this means that Chris might be done because this kind of starting to appear like a a, uh, passing of the mantle or a passing of the hammer, if you will. So, yeah, but that's just it. This trailer uh, featuring Sweet Child of Mine and all that stuff is just a minute and a half. And all it does is just teases all these elements without ever giving us a full-blown breakdown of what the film's all about, which is awesome. It's a nice change of pace, especially for a summer temple film like this. But knowing that it's only under three months of release and we're still only getting a minute and a half trailer just still makes you wonder, how much more is being held back from the film? And how much of that that's being held back is is due in part because of the profound effects that Multiverse of Madness might have? A lot of speculation there. And it's Marvel, so you know that some big power plays are probably being taken into consideration. And all we can really do is wait. But so overall, uh, overall, I'm really, really pleased with the way that this trailer uh, played out. Especially, like I said, giving us something to um, really look forward to. Especially in the style of humor with that shot of uh, you know, look into the people, look into the eyes of the people we love, and then Thor just kind of bleeding in there, or just kind of like popping his head in there. Like that was just classic. Um, Taika Waititi and I love his style of humor so it's good to see that that's being consistent and I'm definitely looking forward to Thor Love and Thunder so I wanted to touch upon this whole announcement for Kingdom Hearts 4 very briefly and the reason why it's brief is because it really was just the announcement. They didn't really do too much of a deep dive. In fact, it, it, they put out pretty much a presentation. It was like a seven-minute, almost eight-minute thing. And I did watch the entirety of it. I just also know that only about, what is it, the last two or three minutes of the actual announcement is involving Kingdom Hearts 4. The rest was for all these other spin-off games that pretty much kind of hit uh, hit the point on the head 
of why it's very it's been very very difficult for me to really care about this announcement <laughs> cuz yeah he, it's funny i tweeted about this as well if you guys want to follow me over on twitter at dark spider david but i pretty much said and obviously i took to twitter to talk about this because of the, at the time i couldn't do a podcast i, I was sick um this was on the Sunday morning that I woke up when I, I told you guys I, earlier at the beginning of, the, of this episode that that Saturday was like the worst day for this cold that I had. And thankfully, Sunday morning, I woke up feeling a lot better. It was actually this Sunday morning. I went to the couch uh, at my girlfriend's place. She was preparing for breakfast. I opened up my phone and boom, there it is. Kingdom Hearts 4 announced. And I thought it was you know people trolling, but it was legitimately a, a thing that IGN and GameSpot and all of them were reporting on. And so I sat down and finally watched this presentation. It opens up with this 2D flash animation thing, and I'm like, what the fuck is this? And it turns out that not just that game, but also the the preceding game, were pretty much games for iOS and Android. And they're, like, there's characters in, in either of those trailers that I do kind of recognize from Kingdom Hearts uh, mythology and lore, but... That's just it. That's the problem. Is that that this story and this plot has just gotten so crazy that when I posted that tweet, I specifically I, like the most important part of that tweet that I put out was when I said that this announcement for Kingdom Hearts Four would have made my 14, 15 year old self lose his absolute shit. So literally, looking 15 years back when Kingdom Hearts Two even came out. I probably would have lost my shit. And I would have been like, oh my god, there's a third and a fourth one. Oh my god. Now I'm like, man, it's just so far removed with just how many spin-offs there's they've been. So much DLC, so much DLC within the DLC, in between DLCs, that it's just it's just so far removed for me that it's very difficult for me to genuinely get excited for Kingdom Hearts 4. I most recently, and by recently, I mean like in the past couple of months or so, finally got to beat Kingdom Hearts 2 after dropping it halfway through back in 2005 when I played it for the first time because my dumbass uh, got stuck on the 1000 Heartless mission. Uh, for those of you who have played Kingdom Hearts 2, you know what mission I'm talking about. Only to then recently play it and finally realize that I could have well not really cheesy because it almost feels like they wanted you to do this but basically there's a mechanic that that you have to do with a certain enemy and a certain action button on the triangle button a certain action you need to repeat over and over via that button instead of actually taking on the heartless one one that invertly would take forever and that's what my dumbass 14 year old self was trying to do all those years back uh, not realizing that it could have made things go by a whole lot quicker if I had taken advantage of that action button. And now, as a 30-year-old, I was able to look at the action, find it, and be like, wow, that that's all I needed to do. <laughs> I could have beaten this game 15 years ago, and I didn't. But nevertheless, I persevered. I finally beat Kingdom Hearts 2 uh, after much grinding, much padding, because they make you go, go through some worlds a second time. And as I finished the game with, like, the three or four final bosses that the game puts you through just when you think you beat it the game's like that wasn't the final boss this is the final boss oh you thought that was the final boss he's got another form i'm like come on it was starting to kind of bleed on the edge of parody and that's just it is that when i rolled credits on kingdom hearts 2 two things came to mind one without going into spoilers in case you have not played any of the kingdom hearts games most notably two let's just say that the ending of two now in retrospect 
makes me a little surprised that there's even a three or a four. Like, if you think about it, and for those of you who have played it, you know what I'm talking about. Like, the way two ends, it's almost like, why did we? Why were more games even made, really? I mean, prequels, you can kind of see how they probably would have extrapolated content, especially because of how many units they were able to sell. It, you know, it's, it is, a, after all, a business, especially when a monopoly like Disney is involved. But... For a three, let alone a four, just recently announced, I am kind of like, but why? Um, and like I said, the the story has gotten so crazy, and I know that there's more in store for me because I played two recently. Like when I played two originally, 15 years ago, I played the original two, like before there were any of those final mixes and uh, HD remasters and repackagings and all that stuff. It was the original two that came out in 2005 on PS2. This new version that I played recently was the final 2.5 remix of the bundle that comes with two and uh, I don't I don't think it, uh, Birth by Sleep and Recoded, um, and I know I have those two latter games yet to play. Like in, on the menu, it even says that after playing two, it's recommended that then you play Birth by Sleep and then the cutscenes for Recoded. So it's not the full game for Recoded, but rather just the cutscenes so you can get kind of get a refresher on that game's part of the story. So there's still those spin-offs and those prequels to go through before finally jumping into three. And some would even argue that Dream Drop Distance needs to be played, but that's not part of this bundle. But it, it, you need to find it someplace else. And I'm just kind of like, man, after beating two... That was the one thing that came to mind is why are there sequels? Because of the way that two kind of ends things. And then the second thing to kind of piggyback on that was, you know what? This shit has gotten so crazy that after three, I'm done. Uh, I'm legitimately done. Because I know that after three, officially, 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 after three, there's only two other things to play. Melody of Memory, which is that music rhythm game that you can play on either PS4 or Switch. And then uh, the Reminded DLC, which I hear the only reason it exists is because apparently people were unhappy with the way 3 ended, so they put out a DLC to try to fix that. Uh, which sounds like a knee-jerk reaction excuse to put out DLC and makes me very uh, skeptical as to whether or not that's something that I want to pull the trigger on. So because of that, I was like, yeah, 3 is it. I actually own 3. I have the Deluxe Edition because I thought the Deluxe Edition looks cool. So I told myself, all right, 3 is it. I could either play it on PlayStation 5 with that Deluxe Edition or on Xbox via Game Pass unless they remove it again because I think they removed it and then they brought it back or something. I can't remember. But uh, I know it's on Game Pass for now. I know it's very possible that it might get removed by the time I get to it. But after 3, I legitimately feel done that I didn't want to touch that Reminded DLC. I didn't want to play Melody of Memory. I was like, after 3, I'm done. Now they announced 4 and I'm like... I, I'm not going to say I'm not going to get four, but at the same time, I'm in no rush or hurry or any genuine sense of excitement because of just, like I said, how crazy they've gotten with the plot that it's just like, man, I need another deep dive into gameplay to see if I'm even remotely curious of buying Kingdom Hearts 4 day one. And, and that's another thing, too, is that this announcement has come on the heels of three so quickly that it's probably going to be a while before we hear of four again. And let alone at four even coming out. Because 
2019 was when 3 came out, and here we are three years later, and they're already announcing 4. And the rest of the community kind of feels the same way, where they took so long in releasing 3, that then turning around 4 so quickly, with the trailer, which I did watch, and like I said, I watched the preliminary spin-off stuff, of which, you know, most of it I'm, I looked at and went, I don't really care for any of this iOS Android stuff, except maybe the other game that looks... Like a legitimate Kingdom Hearts game with the hack and slash, except being on iOS and Android makes me go, okay, is this gonna be turn based or is this like, is this gonna be like that rechain of memories bullshit with the card based system? Um, who knows? We're gonna need uh, some further explanation. But eventually, the presentation then got to the actual uh, trailer for Kingdom Hearts Four, and starts off with the typical mumble jumbo about the darkness and the hearts and all this other. Oh my god, the fucking the dialogue and the the way that the plot just kind of twists and turns and inside of itself. It's it's like I said, I'm so removed at this point that the biggest takeaways I was able to t- get from this trailer was the actual aesthetic, which is the thing that everyone's talking about about how more realistic everything looks. Uh, people have even made comparisons to Final Fantasy VII as far as the graphical fidelity, the actual approach to the artwork, the way that Sora looks, the way that the character that he interacts with, the girl, as well as the cityscape. Especially to me, the cityscape. Everybody keeps saying FF7 remake vibes. Uh, for the majority, it looked like its own thing until it got to the city. Uh, I'm sorry, the street level of the city where you saw people running in panic from that giant heartless that comes out of the ground. That was when I finally looked at it and went, yeah, this, never mind. This actually does look like a FF7 remake as far as assets and the way that the um, aesthetic looks. Um, And then the other big point of contention that people are coming from is that Sora no longer has his clown shoes. (laughs) People legit make YouTube videos about that, dear God. But, the you know, he goes outside, he kind of looks upon this world which is called Quadratum. Quadratum, something like that, but because of the way that the girl says, and she pretty much says that it's like a world, it's almost like an afterlife kind of world. And I'm judging that this is based off of the way Reminded ends, so I guess the trailer pretty much spoils where Sora ended up with, ended up on after Reminded. Uh, personally, like I said, personally, I'm at the point in believing in a mantra, and that mantra is that. Kingdom Hearts is officially a game that's very difficult, if not almost impossible, to spoil because of just how convoluted it's gotten. Like it's it's so convoluted that someone can tell me a spoiler for Kingdom Hearts, and I'm and it's gonna be so out of context that I'm gonna look at them and go, yeah, I don't even know what that means. Like probably by the time I play the game, I'll finally realize what's going on. But, uh, yeah. It, and like I said, I played one, two. I watched and and I watched the cutscenes for Rechain of Memories. And three three six five over two days, and that's so far all that I've digested out of Kingdom Hearts. I have yet to play uh, Birth by Sleep, uh, watch the cutscenes for Recoded. I know we got the two point eight prologue bull- spin off bullshit thing. Finally three, and like I said, only time will tell if I've ever have any kind of inclination to want to d- dive into uh, the Reminded DLC or uh, Melody of Memory, because, like I said, I'm just so tired, I'm just so tired, but I will admit, I am intrigued by the aesthetic of 4, as far as how it looks, uh, this kind of overview, uh, or overhaul of the design of the artwork, of how Sora looks like, people are making jokes online about how Sora aged in 7 days, because apparently this game picks up 7 days after Reminded, with him, and once again, uh, Donald and Goofy being separated by him, which is funny, because Dor- uh, Sora, I'm 
Simon, I'm sorry, Donald and Goofy show up at the end of the trailer and they look exactly the same. So they didn't change them up because Disney's going to be like, no, the fuck you are. <laughs> um, but yeah, Sora in this angle with the um, with the new aesthetic, I did see some people propose this. And I got to be honest, I think I might line up my my theories to this. Uh, two particular theories, in fact. One is that hopefully this is a subtle way within the trailer to, to say that Kingdom Hearts 4 is officially a new start to the franchise. And I hope so. Like, that would actually reinvigorate my desire to get back into Kingdom Hearts, even with the other games still kind of withstanding, like 3, uh, uh, Birth by Sleep, etc. Is knowing that the new aesthetic and the departure of that art style... Uh, from the old school art style, is their way of saying, yeah, we're starting a new, the Heartless are still going to be involved, Order, uh, I mean, Organization 13, as you saw at the end of the trailer, are still going to be involved, but they are starting a new thread, a, a completely new story that just so happens to involve Sora, Donald, and Goofy. And I'm hoping, I'm praying that that's the case. The other theory that people are proposing, which is also kind of legitimate considering Disney's involvement, is that they made the his world and the aesthetic and the art style more realistic so that he can fit better with w potential worlds involving the Star Wars and Avengers franchises. And being that they're Disney-owned, just like two di dipped into the Pirates of the Caribbean worlds, which a lot of people found very good, you know, no no pun intended here, Goofy, because of how Sora, Donald, and Goofy are so cartoon, and yet they're standing right next to a photorealistic uh, Johnny Depp. That's, I think, something that they're trying to address here with this new art style, especially if the majority of the worlds are going to be more in the realistic sense of Star Wars, or photorealistic sense of Star Wars and the Marvel franchises. And I can see that. I can wholeheartedly see that be being a potential thing and an explanation behind this new art style. They did show a little bit of gameplay, but let's just say that the gameplay is just so tiny uh, and quick inside of this trailer that it really does come across as a proof of concept sort of thing uh, it, it, in a way where it's like, yeah, this gameplay could easily change. And I got to be honest, you know, being the skeptic that I am could also be not actual in-game footage if that makes any kind of sense plus looking back at it it didn't even look like he was doing much of the hack and slash typical stuff it was very set pc you know he was he was jumping through like the buildings it was like it was almost like a cinematic with gameplay hud uh assets you know what i'm saying i know it's the skeptic in me but i'm like i'm gonna need a little bit more than that and then they leave us with a little teaser at the end with donald and goofy encountering someone that's involving magic. I think they got like a fire spell or, or, or whatever. But yeah, like I said, at the end of it, it's intriguing, but I couldn't bring myself to get hyped. I'm going to need to know more details about the game, uh, see some more gameplay, some like untapped gameplay, not like a quick snippet that they showed here in the trailer. Um, because like I said, stuff has gone just so crazy with the Kingdom Hearts franchise that eh, they're going to have to bring something new to the table to get me on board. And then I got two more stories that I kind of want to go through quickly because they're, you know, again, there's some of those stories that are kind of quick to talk about, especially one in particular that is strictly very on the rumor side of things, especially because it involves Nintendo. And when Nintendo is secretly working on something or kind of 
you know, developing something, it never really 100% means it's going to see the light of day. You know what I'm saying? Like, especially if it gets leaked or if, you know, it's up until they make an announcement uh, on that formally that they can really, we can really take that as a surefire way of saying, yeah, it's coming out. So in the meantime, let's talk about Amy Hennig, who is a former uh, employee over at Naughty Dog. She was pretty much the spearhead for the initial three Uncharted games, Uncharted 1, 2, and 3. And she started on 4 before she eventually left Naughty Dog. I don't know. I can't remember what exactly was the history there. But then Neil Druckmann and Bruce Straley took over uh, after having the success of The Last of Us to kind of finish the production on Uncharted 4. Uh, since then, however, Amy Hennig has had a history with trying to get a Star Wars game off the ground. And it looks like it's finally going to happen to some extent. I got the article here from IGN. Five years after Visceral Games' closure spelled the end of Amy Hennig's first attempt at a Star Wars game, as I just referenced, the director best known for her work on Uncharted is trying again, this time at Skydance Media. It kind of sounds like the production company that makes movies. I don't know if that's at all related, but we'll see here. Uh, Still quoting from the IGN article, Skydance Media announced today that Hennig is working on a brand new game set in the Star Wars universe. Little is known about the new project save that it will be a richly cinematic action-adventure game featuring an original story set in the Star Wars galaxy. Hennig's new Star Wars game is her second project at Skydance New Media, where she is also working on a completely original game set in the Marvel Universe. Wait, how is that? How is that completely original? Hennig first joined Skydance Media in 2019, where she started a new division based around story-focused experiences that will employ state-of-the-art computer graphics to provide the visual fidelity of television and film, but with an active lean-in experience that puts the audience in the driver's seat. Hennig was previously employed at EA, where she was working on an unnamed Star Wars project known as Project Ragtag. The project was set to be in the style of the Uncharted series, but it was de- delayed and finally canceled as EA shuttered Visceral Games and sought to move the project in a different direction. And you know, just, this is EA we're talking about, so I don't really think they even need an excuse to do things like that. Reports from Kotaku painted a picture of an ambitious title that was nevertheless at odds with EA's direction at the time. EA would later release a single-player Star Wars game of its own in Jedi Fallen Order, which is legitimately dope. I recommend playing it, because I have. Hennig's project joins a raft of Star Wars titles from developers including EA, Ubisoft, and Quantic Dream. The new projects come in the wake of Disney reviving Lucasfilm games and expanding license after years of EX exclusivity. Goddamn right. Earlier this month, TT Games or Traveler's Tales released Lego Star Wars Skywalker Saga and yada yada yada. I guess pretty much the article ends right there saying that Lego Star Wars is awesome, which I have yet to play. I actually do own the Deluxe Edition, which I, which I actually pre-ordered literally back in September of 2020. I pre-ordered Lego Star Wars The Skywalker Saga in September 2020 because at the time, pre-orders went live and I saw that Best Buy was throwing in a free steelbook that has a Lego Han Solo encased in carbonite. I thought that was sick. I thought that was an awesome little steelbook. Very compelling. And I needed to have it. And along with it, I thought to myself, might as well get the Deluxe Edition. It's only $10 more than the Standard Edition. And you get that little uh, Luke Skywalker figurine. Might as well do it, right? And then the game got delayed and delayed and delayed. I'm like, is this thing even coming out? And Best Buy for a while did not tell me a date. It just said, hey, we'll ship it to you when it's ready. And that's all it would say. And then finally it's here, and it's actually in my possession. So I finally got the Steelbook as well as the game itself. It's over here in the corner. So 
Uh, I don't know if that's going to be the next game after finally saying that I'm done with Triangle Strategy. Maybe Lego Star Wars Skywalker Saga or maybe something a little bit on the much more active side. Because after playing something that's very back and forth, literally back and forth as Triangle Strategy because it's turn-based, I'm ready for something that's a bit more actively ongoing. Especially with what I mentioned at the beginning after sadly losing my job. I'm going to have a lot more time and it looks like maybe games such as Elden Ring and Dying Light 2 can finally be tackled without the worry of like, oh, this is going to take forever to beat because I can only play at nighttime. No, now I'll be able to play during the daytime and at nighttime in between edits from a YouTube channel and applications submitted, etc., etc. So I'm pretty sure I'll be able to get through my 2022 backlog a whole lot, at least a little quicker here for the foreseeable uh, month or so. But let's you know let's bring it back to the proper rails here which is Amy Hennig making a new Star Wars game very happy for her i can you know with the three uncharted games alone i know that she's a very capable director a very capable uh, more than capable director and and developer like uncharted the, those three seminal uncharted games are like i just said seminal they're action set piece uh, you know holy grails as far as what an action adventure game should be and I definitely sensed her her presence departing when tackling Uncharted 4. That's not to say Uncharted 4 is not good. It is. Um, is but I think we all agree that Uncharted 4 had something, just, just a little something, an element, a very, very difficult thing to put our finger on that was missing in Uncharted 4 versus the other three Uncharted's. And I, I solely believe that Amy Hennig was responsible for that. And her being missing from Uncharted 4 was definitely felt. Like, I definitely saw a little bit more of The Last of Us in Uncharted 4 than I did the actual preceding three con- mainline console Uncharted games, aside from um, Golden Compass, which I have yet to play. I actually do have for my Vita, and I've yet to play because... Not because I don't have the time anymore. Obviously, I have the time now, and I technically could have tackled it by now because it's not even that long of a game. I think it's like six or seven hours. But I'm actually, I've actually been procrastinating playing a golden compass because i know that once i play that that's it for the uncharted games i'm actually done with uncharted games and i am played every single one of them even lost legacy um so i know that that saga will more or less kind of end for me once i play through uh golden compass but i know i'm gonna have to get it get that done because i want to get my two main handheld backlogs out of the way vita and 3ds there that way my switch will be my only handheld and that way we can get through that gargantuan backlog since I got a shit ton of games for that one. Um, but with the Uncharted games, you know, Amy Hennig was definitely responsible for giving me great memories on the PlayStation 3 and made me fall in love with the franchise. So seeing her wanting to do a Star Wars game, even back in the day with the Visceral Games company brand behind her, I was like, I was down for it all the way. I was legitimately bummed when they shut down Visceral Games who originally made you know the Dead Space Dead Space games? So there was definitely an engine. There were definitely developers and artists and programmers and people that were you know available to her. That with her creative vision and then their talents, I was like, yo, that mapped to a Star Wars game called Project Ragtag, which meant that it could have been like a. I think there was like some previous footage some time ago. I, I can't remember if I'm 100% right here, but I remember there being some previous footage that showed like a character on Tatooine and he was kind of like going around the areas, you know, almost in the like a Western style kind of way through like a shootout or something. And 
if that was like a vision of what she had in mind, that would have been sick. But it got canceled. It's EA. They shut down the whole company. There were things going on behind the scenes that probably was a little too ambitious. That maybe the engine just wasn't right then. It's sounding like the engines are becoming a bit more capable now, especially with the new, new most recent release of Unreal Engine 5 that I think finally made uh, the decision to bring back Amy Hennig to make a Star Wars game a much more worthwhile kind of investment to actually get this uh, uh, going. So she's trying again, only this time at Skydance Media. Skydance Media hopefully saw the potential in what she's willing to bring to the table. Uh, like I said, not much else is being uh dealt as far as the details about this but other than the fact that like they put the quote here in the IGN article a richly cinematic action adventure game featuring an original story nowhere in here I mean maybe she'll deny it later on but nowhere in here is she is she flat out saying that they're going to that that it's not going to be the original project uh, ragtag the only thing that does make me go okay it's not ragtag she's probably going to make something similar to ragtag but it's not going to be ragtag is that i think ea officially owns the license to that so even though they killed it's kind of like when you huh, i i should probably be speaking from experience here but take in case my recent tenure at this residency job that i was talking about um all the content that i made for that agency belongs to the agency. I, I I don't own it, meaning I can't post it. I can't take it to someplace else and you know retrofit it to, to that or you know um, salvage it and and man, manipulate it in any kind of way to fit that. No, they own it. I my only course of action is to let it go. And I feel like Amy Hennig might be in that similar position where Ragtag, the license to Ragtag, is owned by EA. And even though they're probably never ever gonna do anything with it, uh. She can't touch it, and she can't go back to it. So she has to create something completely new and different. And I'm pretty sure that she had quite an awful lot of ideas uh, uh, saved up, banked up, uh, to be able to formulate a brand new Star Wars experience, but still bring her strengths to the table as far as, like it says right here, cinematic action-adventure. If that doesn't sound like Uncharted, I don't know what does. And an Uncharted-style game set in the Star Wars universe... I'm 100% on board. And then our last story is strictly going to be a rumor. Just a rumor. Again, Nintendo be that company that likes to make an awful lot of stuff and then sometimes not even release it. Or if they do release it, it comes in a way in a way where in a form that's not 100% what was even leaked in the first place. But it's rather tantalizing and I'm not going to lie. Despite my reservations with Nintendo as a company, as far as what they do with Nintendo Switch Online and all these other things, I gotta be honest, if this report, if this leak turns out to be true, some added value might be coming to Nintendo Switch Online, especially for their expansion pass, that obviously not right now, it's difficult to make this call due to financial concerns with my loss of employment. But in the future, if it becomes like a tantalizing thing and, I've, and I'm good on money and such and such, Okay, fine. You know, like I said, added value such as this could potentially make Nintendo on Switch Online, along with the expansion pass, more of an investment. Still a lot more to be desired, but there is some wiggle room here to, I guess you could say, open negotiations. A Nintendo Game Boy and Game Boy Advance emulator for Switch Online has potentially been leaked. This is the article over at GameSpot.com. By Darren Bonthois, 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 
sorry, I don't know, but this broke on April 19th. And this is the article, I'm quoting the article here. Details on Game Boy and Game Boy Advance emulators for the Nintendo Switch has reportedly leaked online alongside a long list of games that have allegedly been tested on the software. As spotted by Twitter user, jeez, this, this fucking account name, Trash Bandadkoot, Bandadkoot, oh I get it, Ban that coot instead of bandicoot trash band that coot <laughs> i like that name i'm sorry um but files containing emulators in development by nintendo europe research and development originally leaked onto 4chan on oh, good old 4chan again 4chan almost everything on 4chan just please 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 like i do take it with a grain of salt please under the code names of hyoyo for game boy software and sloop i like that for Game Boy Advance emulation. Another Twitter user by the name of Rat... What the hell? Rat Coral Hunter uploaded alleged camera footage of the emulators booting up and running on Switch, although their account has since been deleted. Oh, God. Nintendo sent in, Nintendo sent in the assassins. Oh, my God. On top of that, the Pokemon and Gaming Leaks account Pori Leaks told Kotaku that the emulator only works on a Switch dev kit currently. So... It's not even a full-blown service that has been injected into Nintendo Switch Online. They're literally just testing it with a, uh, with a dev kit to see if these games even run on Switch in the first place. So them testing it on, the, on that very primal level is enough for us to go, yeah, this might happen or this might not even happen. Like, maybe tests were so inconclusive that the Nintendo finally said, eh, kill it. And we never, ever, ever see it. But uh, I'll go on here before I finally interject with my thoughts. As for the games that could be emulated on the software, dozens of titles have been tested so far and include a number of classic Nintendo games and hidden gems. The leaked list spotted by VGC includes, and it's actually kind of a lengthy list, so I'll try to see if I can go through this um, quickly. <clears throat> Astro Boy Omega Factor, Car Battler Joe, Castlevania a a Area of Sorrow, Castlevania Circle of the Moon, Choo Choo Rocket, Drill Dozer, Fire Emblem, The Sacred Stones, F-Zero Maximum Velocity. Hey, look at that, an F-Zero game that actually exists. Game & Watch Gallery 4, Golden Sun, Golden Sun, The Lost Age, Gunstar Superheroes, Harvest Moon, Friends of Mineral Town, Kingdom Hearts, Chain of Memories, fuck you, Kirby and the Amazing Mirror, uh, Coral Coral Puzzle, Happy Panachu. Kuro Kuro Kukuruin, this thing is actually making me say these names, Lufia, The Ruins of Lore, Mario and Luigi, Superstar Saga, Mario Golf Advance Tour, Mario Kart Super Circuit, Mario Party Advance, Mario Tennis po uh, Power Tour, Mario vs. Donkey Kong, Ooh, Mega Man Battle Network 5, Team Proto Man, Mega Man Battle Network 2, those I'm interested in because I remember those from back in the day and I actually really like those Mega Man games. Mega Man Zero 3, Metroid Fusion, Metroid Zero Mission, Driller 2, Ninja 5-0, Pokemon Mystery Dungeon, Red Rescue Team, Pokemon Pinball, Ruby and Sapphire, Super Mario Advance 4, Super Mario Brothers 3. That's not two separate games. That's like Advance 4, colon, Super Mario Brother, uh, Super Mario Brothers 3. Super Robot, Tainsen, Original Generation, Tactics Ogre, The Night of Lotus, Royal Land 4, Royal Warrior, Inc. Mega Microgames, Yoshi's Island, Super Mario Advance 3, and then The Legend of Zelda, The Minish Cap. We finally got to a Game, a game Boy Advance here, game here that I looked at and went, oh, actually, that, I'm interested in that. <laughs> that's it, is The Minish Cap, because that's actually a game I would not mind being ported over to the Switch because I missed it when I had, when I was, you know, 
uh, having you know regularly circulating my Game Boy Advance along with the GameCube and the PlayStation Two back in the day. Uh, seeing the ba- some love to the Battle Network games from Mega Man is pretty cool because I actually really enjoyed those games. I know they're not very typical Mega Man games because they're not 2D side scrollers. They're turn based on like a ter- you know just talking about finishing talking about triangle strategy. Um, Mega Man is similar to that except it's more like Octopath where it's like on the side and you- but you still move pieces on a nine square grid and you you know you choose your moves and, and things like that. I don't know. There was something about those games that I really loved. I do notice that uh, of these Game Boy and Game Boy Advance games list that have so far been tested, and there's an off a great hole left by Pokemon games. And when I say Pokemon games, I mean the traditional ones. I know in there we saw what was it Pokemon Mystery Dungeon and Pokemon Pinball. Yes, but I mean, come on. When you think of Game Boy Advance, there's no way you don't think about the mainline Pokemon games that were released on the that platform, Ruby and Sapphire which I don't see ever getting ported because you already have those uh, remakes um, on the 3DS. And then you have uh, uh, Fire oh fire Red and Leaf Green. I would actually not mind if they at least try to test those out. And that's not to say that those ha- are not being currently tested. Th- this list is supposed to be a rumored leaked uh, list of games that have been tested and pro- potentially work on this emulation uh, dev kit. So continuing on with the article, rumors of a Game Boy and Game Boy Advance virtual console for the Switch began making the rounds last year. Although Nintendo has yet to confirm its existence, the Switch currently... Okay, never mind. It's now talking about uh, the current things that it's emulating on Switch Online, NES, SNES, Genesis, and N64 as part of the regular and premium subscription services respectively. Uh, there was a virtual console for the Game Boy, and uh, I don't know about the Game Boy Advance, but a Game Boy available on the 3DS, although the Game Boy Advance has received much less exposure over the years after it was replaced by the Nintendo DS. So yeah, that's the thing, is that there, hopefully, like the list mentioned, we get more hidden gems getting the exposure, because when you think about it, we're starting to go into a cycle here with the Switch and, it's, and the current state of Nintendo, that people are really resonating with Game Boy and Game Boy Color games, that even Nintendo's going back to that well to remake games from that era. Uh, and the Advance is barely getting any kind of love. Like, it, prior to this year, I would say, it was all about Game Boy and Game Boy Color, especially after Nintendo announced the Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening remake. Now we're starting to see some more love for the Advance, whether it be this leaked uh, emulator for Nintendo Switch Online, like they do with SNES and NES on Nintendo Switch Online service, and the remake of Advance Wars and Advance War—I mean, Advance Wars One and Two, which sadly recently got delayed, unfortunately because the plot has to do with Russia, and they're probably trying to make a decision on that. Um, so outside of those things, it's cool to see that the Game Boy Advance is getting some love. Hopefully, this brings, like I said, games that I do distinctly remember playing on the system getting more love. I know it's very easy to fall back on the Pokemon mainline Pokemon games that are missing from the list. It would be nice to get Fire Red because uh, I did like Fire Red and I would like to replay Fire Red, especially after some fucker that I left um, him borrow my copy of Fire Red on Game Boy Advance, never returned it, and he claimed for it to be lost. Bull fucking shit. I think that's where my trust issues actually started. Now that I think about it, I think that's where I stopped, legitimately stopped letting people borrow things as easily. Now it's a little easier because obviously we're all adults, you know, we're 30 plus years. But for a really long time, I was not letting anyone borrow my shit after that day, after that week where where my so-called friend wanted to borrow Fire Red and he never gave it back. 
and I stopped talking to him. I remember how he looked like, but I cannot remember his name. That, that's how I've always been. I've been good with faces, but not with names. Um, but yeah, it would be nice to revisit my childhood from that missing cartridge with uh, Fire Red emulation on this potential Switch Online emulator. But again, it sounds very uh, primal in its stages of development because they're still testing it out on the dev kit, which means it's early enough for them to just pull the plug, be like, yeah, we can't get as many games as we wanted to to get a good return investment. We don't see this as ideal for people to sign up for the service. Let's move on to the next bigger and better thing. And then we they, we never see this emulator see the light of day. So right now we can only take it as a grain of salt and just daydream about what awesome Game Boy Advance games we would like to see. A, a few more Battle Network games for Mega Man would be nice for me as well as, like I said, Fire Red. Not so much Omega Ruby because I already have the Omega... I mean, I'm sorry, not so much Ruby or Sapphire because we already got the remix for 3DS. I actually um, still recently played Omega Ruby as me and my girlfriend are kind of like tossing it back and forth on the 2DS XL. Um, so that will probably be the next stage is that if this does get confirmed then hopefully it would only be a matter of time before we can get 3DS, well, DS, I should say, DS, 2DS emulation on the Switch Online. And and when I say Switch Online, probably not for the standard Switch. That would probably be a thing saved for whatever iteration of the Switch is next as far as like a Switch Pro, Switch 4K, Switch Plus, whatever you want to call it. I would say if they do bring out a new Switch console, a revamp one, especially for next year's now after the delay of Breath of the Wild 2 and how I mentioned in that last episode saying that the, one of the reasons that I speculate why Breath of the Wild 2 was delayed was because they wanted to release it alongside a better Switch just like they did with Breath of the Wild being a cross-gen between Switch and Wii U. I would love if they got a new Switch that can do 4K on TV, not not portable obviously but it's a much souped up system with better gra graphics card a better processor better battery all that stuff all that jazz and then hopefully it's powerful enough to emulate ds and 2ds games obviously I, I don't feel comfortable calling it 3ds because there's no 3d effect but obviously games of the ds and 2ds slash 3ds uh uh era would be nice to be emulated on, on the Switch so that then everything can just be found in one bundled place. Not it not only because of the convenience, but also because this 2DS XL that me and the girlfriend are passing back and forth to play Omega Ruby on, well, for one, until we move in, we're passing it back and forth. So there might be a long stretch of days where I'm not going to have the system she is and I won't be able to play on it. But even when I do get it back and I am playing on it, that thing, I don't know if it, I got a defective unit or what, but ever so often I'm getting error messages uh, that completely break crash my game and I have to reboot the, the system and therefore I lose progress, especially if I didn't save. And that's for any game, not just Omega Ruby, but I tried a different game and it did the exact same thing. And it's not even like two years old. I think it's barely even. I think it's barely about to hit two years in like September, or maybe even less than that. I think I got it last year, in September. So yeah, it's 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 crazy. I don't know if like I said, I got a defective unit. Obviously, it's too little, too late because of the way Nintendo operates now. They're shutting down the 3DS um, and Wii U. Wait, is it Wii U? Yeah, the Wii U and 3DS shops next year. So and they definitely stopped manufacturing 3 3DSs and 2DSs and 2DS XLs, which is pretty much. The one that me and my girlfriend are passing back and forth, the black and turquoise one. And so 
in you know obviously if it goes you know kaput and it crashes and never turns back on it's a paperweight because there's no way I'm going to be able to send it into Nintendo or get it covered because they're not manufacturing them anymore. It's it's done. So knowing that my 2DS XL as it is is hanging by a thread, it would be nice if maybe in the future we move on to the next stage of emulating DS, 3DS slash 2DS games on a better version of the Switch. Then that would bring things kind of full circle. And that coupled with Game Boy and Game Boy Advance games and the expansions and the DLC that the expansion pack for the Nintendo Switch Online service provides, along with a much better library of Nintendo 64 games, then maybe, maybe, just maybe, 2023 will be the year that I'll pull the trigger on that expansion pack. And I'll finally do it. For now, all I'll do is just sit back, wait, and speculate. And wrap the episode up because I am tired now. But thank you guys so much for making it all the way to the very end here. Again, apologies that I couldn't bring you guys an episode last week, but the the, the voice was just not there. Along with also the news. The news were just not there. But thankfully, this week we had quite an awful lot to talk about, whether it be rumored stuff, uh, confirmed stuff, as well as things that broke out in the Marvel Universe and things uh, as that I've been playing that are finally making great strides as far as putting Triangle Strategy behind me tackling the steam deck and then hopefully next week along with more impressions of the steam deck you guys will hear uh what new game i started up it could be dying light 2 it could be elden ring or it could be something that was dropped on game pass and has been getting good word of mouth i i've been hearing great things about tunic i've been wanting to play uh tunic uh the only thing that's keeping me from playing tunic is that it's still it's got the same asymmetrical top-down view as triangle strategy did so i'm kind of ready for, to get back into either third person uh or first person games uh, i.e dying light 2 or elden ring so because of that i'm kind of like oh, i don't know what i do so i'll let you guys know exactly what i decided to start up by next week's podcast in the meantime though you guys know how to stay in touch find me over on twitter and on Instagram at DarkSpiderDavid. Check out the website, DarkSpiderDavid.com. But also, more importantly, check out the Niche V2 slash Spider-Man and Batman channel with plenty more McFarlane toy reviews, plenty more uh, videos encompassing the Steam Deck. I I probably won't have just solely a Steam Deck video going up on the Miscellaneous channel, but on the Niche channel, I do plan... (laughs) I don't don't know what where I came up with this idea, but... One thing that I want to really, really do is see if I can emulate the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man games on the Steam Deck via Dolphin and all those different kind of emulators and see if I could put them on there and see how well they run. I'd say that would make for a very entertaining piece of content. If you guys want to look out for that, check out the Niche channel or the Spider-Man Batman channel. Link is in the description. And as always, guys, thank you so much for listening and stay humble. I'll talk to you guys next week.